I was as bad as what you could get. Like literally, I was in the end. I was at the end of the road. You could not go anywhere else from where I was. I was sitting in a in a double category A high security unit in in a prison. Told that I would never change. It was impossible. So if I've managed to do this, anyone can. Anyone can. Hi, my name is Rongan Chatterjee. Welcome to Feel Better, Live More. So this is the fifth conversation I've chosen to put out as part of this special weekend re-release series that I have to say is proving to be really, really popular with new listeners and old listeners alike. Now, you may have heard me say over the past few weeks that there are a lot of new listeners coming to this show at the moment because of all the publicity surrounding the release of my new book, Happy Minds, Happy Life. And so for new listeners, I really wanted to be able to showcase what this podcast is all about and the variety of different topics I try to cover each week. Having said that, I'm also getting inundated with messages from longtime listeners who are really enjoying re-listening to some of the classic episodes from the archive. Now, today's conversation is definitely an all-time classic, and it's with someone who I've spoken to on this podcast on three separate occasions so far. And I know there will be more conversations in the future as we have become very, very good friends. My guest is John McAvoy, and I can pretty much guarantee that his life story is one of the most inspirational that you will ever hear. John was born into one of Britain's most well-known crime families and has served a total of 10 years in some of the UK's highest security prisons for armed robbery. He was actually raised into a life of organised crime, and as a teenager, this was the only career path that he could see for himself. In fact, he bought his first gun at the age of 16 and very quickly became one of the UK's most wanted men. So how did John go from serving two life sentences to breaking British and world sporting records, giving talks to schoolchildren, and being invited to 10 Downing Streets for his views on the justice system? Well, in today's incredible conversation, you are about to find out. Not only is every part of John's story worthy of a Hollywood movie script, the lessons and life advice that he shares are relevant to each and every one of us. Whether you're interested in his rowing and Ironman success, how he transformed his moral codes, how he overcame adversity, or how he stayed consistent, I think you are going to find this a compelling conversation. Yes, this is a long episode, but it is well worth your time. No matter where you currently are in your life, if you are looking for some inspiration, you have definitely come to the right place. This is a powerful conversation. I hope you enjoy listening. Now, before we get started, just a quick shout out to Vivo Barefoot, who are bringing you today's show. Now, I've been wearing and recommending Vivo Barefoot shoes for over nine years, well before they started supporting my podcast. And they really have transformed my own life, as well as that of my family, many of my friends, and a lot of my patients. I've seen so many benefits when people start to wear minimalist shoes like Vivo's. I've seen improvements in back pain, hip pain, knee pain, foot pain, even things like plantar fasciitis, as well as a general increased enjoyment of movements because simply walking around in minimalist shoes makes you much more mindful of the experience as you feel more connected to the ground beneath your feet. 
Now, Vivo barefoot shoes are really, really comfortable. They are the only shoes that my wife and I wear and the only shoes that I get for my children. If you have never tried them before, I really would encourage you to give them a go. It's completely risk-free to do so because they offer a 100-day trial for new customers. So if you're not happy, you can send them back for a full refund. They offer a great range of shoes for kids and adults and for every activity from hiking to training to everyday wear. For listeners of my show, if you go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more, they are giving 20% off as a one-time code for all of my podcast listeners. Terms and conditions apply. To get your 20% off code, simply go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. And now here's my conversation with Mr. John McAvoy. So John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. I have been so looking forward to this conversation. It's been, how long have we been trying to get this set up? Over a year. Over a year? Yeah, over a year. Over a year. We finally managed to, to do it. Thanks for driving up. Um, I think your story is so incredible and inspirational. It, it's pretty hard to know where to start. So I guess we should probably start with how your drive up was. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> My drive up wasn't too bad, to be honest. I drove from London up to Derby and I stayed at Derby last night at my yeah. friend's house and I drove from Derby here this morning, stopping at the gym on the way up to train. Do you? Yeah. Do you train quite a lot now? Yeah, like I train uh, seven days a week. Um, I've got quite a big block of training at the moment because I'm racing next weekend at the Red Bull time-lapse race, which is a 25-hour 6K loop. Do yeah. as many loops as you can on your bike in that time. Yeah. So I'm in the last big block of training before that race next Saturday. So how many loops do you have to do? Well, it's it's literally 25 hours because it's the equinox. So it's when the clocks go back and it's it's how many times you can cycle around that, that 6K loop in 25 hours. And you get a power hour. So at, I think 12 o'clock at night, they let you go into a mini loop and everything you do on that mini loop is double the laps. It's like a computer game. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> there's, I think there's 1,000 people taking part in a relay in relays yeah. um, and there's 20 of us doing it as solo riders. So just on your own. So I uh, I have to sort sort of work out the strategy and what I'm going to use to cycle for that 25 hours. I mean, it sounds to me as though, of course, that's about fitness, but it seems to be more about mental strength. Oh, totally. Uh, uh, yes, 100%. Like you, I, I think in, in a lot of aspects of, of what I do today, um, I think that's probably why I went across into endurance sport in the first place, because I think like 80% of it's physicality. Um or should I, should I say, yes, physicality is in the context of the training and, and getting there. But then when you do a sport like Ironman, the psychological element of of the race is far greater than the physicality of your view being strong because at, at a point, your body will start screaming for you to slow down. Um, and you've got so much time to process what you're doing. So for instance, riding a bike for 25 hours, I've got so much time to analyze why I'm doing it. It becomes past physicality. Like it, it, it's so long that it's not just about being really quick because your mind, if your mind gives up and cracks, that then obviously it doesn't matter how strong you are physically, you, you will stop or you'll slow down. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you say that in the context of your story um, and your life journey is incredible because you appear to be someone to me who's got an incredible about mental strength. And, you know, have you ever cracked? Has your mind ever cracked to the point where you couldn't go on? Um... No, not, not, no, no, it hasn't. Um, it's weird, like, because it, 
I don't know, like environment as a kid and growing up and situations. I, I believe obviously experience dictates a lot of of who you become as an adult from your childhood. Um, like I, I often say this about myself, I don't see myself as being unique in any which way. Like that's how I've always been. Um, so, so what I do today, for instance, the sport I do and how I live my life, I've, I've, I've always been like that with the mindset. Um, but what can, what can happen if you apply that mindset into something very negative, how detrimental it could yeah. be because how I am today is how I've always been, um, in, in certain regards. Yeah. But years ago, that same mindset was applied in something very negative and it was then very destructive to how I led my life and, and the sort of consequences of, of that behavior and what that obviously led me to being in prison for 10 years of my life. That's incredible to think that the same mindset that can lead you to incredible athletic success is the same mindset that when applied to different choices and, and different ideologies can lead to you being in a prison cell. And that's quite fascinating for me. Well, I, I could tell you a very interesting story once. So a really good friend of mine went to London 2012 Olympics and he's a retired athlete now. He won a silver medal. He was a world champion in rowing and he rowed at the same rowing club as me. And we were, we were running along every day because he was, he was training for the marathon. And, and I remember as we were running along, we was, we was having this sort of discussion about environment and growing up. And, and I was trying to explain to him the conversations that me and him were having that day, I was having those conversations in a high security prison unit with people that were in there for organized crime. But as young people, that they had that exposure to crime and, and that way of life, he was exposed to sport. Um, rowing but the mindset was exactly the same the will to win the wanting to be successful the wanting to achieve something the wanting to leave a legacy those characteristics were exactly the same they were they were exactly the same as what both groups of people had but it was how this group of people applied it into crime and it became detrimental to their lives and, and the impact that had on society by their childhood and by the, the, the lack of opportunity to do something else and have any awareness that that mindset, what you could potentially do with that if it was applied into something else. So that, that's, it comes back to what I just said a minute ago. It's like, if, if, if when I was growing up as a kid, I strongly believed this. If, if I would have had uh, exposure to Richard Branson or someone that was yeah. involved in business or, or an athlete, my life journey would have been completely different. But when I was a young boy, my mindset and my exposure was was directed towards criminality yeah. and, and and everyone that I saw that was like me and they were like me like my stepdad when I was growing up as a kid he was driven he was very focused um he spent 16 years in prison for armed robbery had five acquittals at the old bailey but he was similar to me I could I saw similarities in these people and, and they made that life and and I attributed success to be money it become very obtainable like it, it was a road in which to get it and what I deemed as being successful as at, at that point in my life which was having lots of money they all had lots of money so it become very tangible and I could touch it and it was real and they showed me a direct path that that mindset that I had how I could then go and obtain that success yeah so in some ways it's a dedication to excellence it's just depends on what your definition of excellence mm. is, right? Yeah. And if you're driven by money and, and around you, you're growing up where criminal activity is leading people to having money and having all the, you know, the material success in life, of course, you're going to apply that mindset to that. Um, so for a lot of people listening to this, they may not be familiar with your story, John, and the fact that you were in prison for 10 years, did you say? Yes. Yeah. yeah so maybe you could walk us through that. I mean, what happens, you know, what was your childhood like? 
how was it that you ended up with such a strong mindset in a prison cell? So I will have to probably go all the way back to before I was even born. So my real dad died of a massive heart attack at 38 years old. He went to bed one night and my mum was eight months pregnant with me and he, didn't, he never woke up. Um, he was undiagnosed, didn't realize he had a heart condition, passed away. So I get born into the world. Um, I had my dad's name, John, and I had what you could class as quite a relatively loving childhood. Like Christmases were happy for me. Um, my mum and my sister brought me up and my, we had this big extended family. All My mum had loads, like, lots of sisters, so that my aunties, my cousins, and, and I was a happy child. I was a really happy child. I was really well loved. Um, I, I have amazing memories of my childhood. And when I started going to primary school, um, to me, not having a dad didn't, it, I didn't know I was missing anything because I didn't have a dad because it was just normal because there was no man in our lives as a kid. And I, and I remember the children at primary school used to tease me. And they used to say like, where's your dad? And obviously I didn't know who my dad was. And I, and I never, I, I remember this little boy, I, I went home and I asked my mum and my mum explained to me that my dad had died. Um, and obviously being a little quick kid and, and even as a man, I'm very acquisitive. I always like to understand stuff. I've always had that mindset as a kid, um, which we can go on how that played out later on in my life. And my mum explained to me my dad had died. Obviously, my question back, what does that mean? My mum explained that he's gone to heaven. Um, then I made a connection from a very young age that my life was limited. Like I wouldn't be alive forever. And I, and I made this connection as young as that one day I would not live. And something ignited in me as a kid where I didn't want to be normal in the context of I wanted to achieve something in my life. I didn't want to be average. Um, and I, and, it, and I, it had this overwhelming effect on me. And my mum used to take me to museums and like the HMS Belfast on the Thames, like London Dungeons, Tower London, the, the British War Museum and stuff. And, and I just used to love learning about history. And she used to get me these magazines every month called Discovery. And in discovery booklets, you used to get puzzles and you used to like, it'd be about Henry VIII and Napoleon and you'd learn about history as you did. And I was a little boy. And I can remember thinking like, these men and women were on earth before I was born and hundreds of years. And I was in this, my house in Crystal Palace Park Road in London and, and I'm reading about them and what they had done. And, and I was so young, I didn't understand it was, it was legacy, but they had achieved something in life where I was now reading about them hundreds of years after they had died. And then that then sparked something in me that, that I wanted that when I was older. Like I wanted to achieve something in my life that was significant. And I don't know how this sort of happened, but I just then morphed into this obsession with British Telecom. And I used to sit there and love watching the adverts on TV. And and again, like, I, was a, I was a young boy and I, I'll never forget, like we'd drive in my mum's car and I'd be in the back or the passenger seat and I'd look out the window and every corner had a BT phone box. And then when I'd go around to my aunties and uncles' houses, they had a complete monopoly on the telephone communication system and everyone had a BT landline. And I remember like I'd run around and there would be a BT phone in the bedroom, in the living room. And I said to my uncle one day, I said, how much money does British Telecom make? And he said, they make billions of pounds a year. And then from that moment, my dream when I got older was to own British Telecom. <laughs> and, and I was convinced that that's what I was going to do. If anyone said to me, what do you want to be when you're older? And I said, I want to own British Telecom. Uh, the reason I'm trying to, I'm explaining this to you now is because even from a little boy, I was like eight years old. I was so driven to do something with my life. I wanted to achieve something. And then you can only class as what happened next 
was like this perfect storm of this man coming to my life when I was eight years old. Um, I didn't know who he was. He came into our house in Christopher's Park Road and men never really used to come around my mum's house other than my uncle's. And he walked in and he was immaculately dressed. Uh, I'll never forget, black hair, really white teeth, massive gold watch on his wrist, really clean black shoes. And I was just, I remember I, I was standing in the hallway and I, and my mum opened the door and he come in and I was just in awe of this man. I was in awe of him. And he went into the living room and he asked me to go and make him a cup of tea. And I went into the kitchen and this little boy, I made him this cup of tea and I went back in. I was watching like my mum have dialogue with him and my sister. And then as he was leaving, he gave me a 20 pound note. And obviously I was a young boy. It was the first time an adult had ever given me paper money. And I was just in awe of this 20 pound note. And I remember like, obviously as a kid, I'm thinking about going to Woolworths and spending it on sweets. <laughs> and he left. And then I asked my mum who he was. And my mum explained to me um, that was her ex-husband. So before my mum married my dad, um, when she was growing up as a kid in South London, um, they lived with each other on the same council estate, both Irish Catholics. Families were really close. Um, they grew up as basically, basically kids, ba like babies. And when they were 16, my mum got married to him. When my mum was 18, she fell pregnant with my sister, which was my half-sister really, but I didn't see her like that. Um, and that was her biological dad. And he it was a bit hard for me to understand because I was so young, but he started coming around, taking my sister out, taking me out. He didn't have a son. I didn't have a dad. He's obviously got this warmth to me. He knows my real dad's dead. So he knows my mum's obviously struggled to bring me up. He started taking me out um, with my sister, stops taking my sister out, continues to keep taking me out. Then I'm nine, then I'm 10, then I'm 11. We're going out to restaurants. We're going out to bars. He's, he's um, all the trappings of wealth. Um, he always used to tell me that when he was 21 years old, he was a multimillionaire. Um, he had Mercedes, Porsches. He, had, he used to tell me he had a, an apartment on the Champs-Élysées in France, in Paris. Uh, he started taking me out to these restaurants and there would be all these men. They were all his friends. They were all very similar to him. Um, always talking about money. Always talking about money. And my granddad passed away when I was 12. And when my granddad passed away, me and my mum and my aunties were clearing out my dad, granddad's flat. And there was a big bundle of um, newspaper clippings in an envelope that my granddad had saved in a drawer. And I opened up the drawer, took this, new, this, this, this bundle of newspaper clippings, looked at them. And it was like headlines of the Sun newspaper, the news of the world. Um, and that man, Billy, my mum's ex-husband, was one of the most prolific armed robbers in the United Kingdom. Um, he had five acquittals at the Old Bailey. The police had tried to kill him twice. They shot him twice. Um, and when I met him when I was eight years old, he'd literally just been released from serving a 16-year prison sentence for armed robbery. And you didn't know any of this? I didn't know any of this. To the time. So he never used to talk to me about prison whatsoever um, up to that point. So how you, you, you just found out when you were looking through yes. these clippings? Yes. And then as a 12-year-old, as a, as a you connect the dots up. So the Porsche 911s and the Mercedes-Benz and this, that, and the other, like you, you start connecting it up and you, you probably start, I surmise, that all the money that he had now today and all the men that we were going out with, his friends were all engaged in that behaviour. Then I had the awareness of that's what was happening. So how old were you then at that point? I was 12. So you're 12. So for four years, you've become very close, I'm guessing. Yes, yeah, very, very close. Like I, I saw him like he was my dad. Yeah. I, I treated him like, like, like I loved him. Um, he looked after me. 
Christmas. Like he, like he, 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 he become like my father. He didn't live with us, but he, he was, he was, he was in my mum's life because of my sister. So he used to always come round and and pick my sister up and then start picking me up. And presumably, your mum knew what he was up to, um, or his lifestyle. Yeah. my mum, my mum knew probably what his previous lifestyle. I don't think my mum necessarily knew what he was getting up to because they yeah. didn't live with each other. So they wasn't right. in a relationship, so they were very separated. Like my mum was a florist. Yeah, um, went to work every day. Um, and and I often say this about my mum's situation with this in regards to this situation because my mum married him when they were little kids. Yeah, and they grew up together. And and, and I never my mum my mum told me this once like he was he was normal like in regards of he 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 was a um, uh, painter decorator. And when he was sixteen years old, his father got murdered in front of him. And my mum always said to me when I got older that was the trigger. And something inside him changed. And then he then ended up basically going off onto this path of becoming one of Britain's most wanted men um, and becoming one of the most high-profile armed robbers in the United Kingdom. From that turning point of watching his dad get murdered in front of him when he was 16 years old. I mean, it's fascinating to hear how things that happen to us at various points in our life it can completely shape us. It can change our viewpoint. It can change our perception of the world's you know, had he not seen his dad be shot, who knows what he would have been doing, right? Yeah. And it's... And then, and, and, and that, yeah, and then what ended up happening with him, he, he started hanging out with the wrong groups of people that then showed him a different life um, and, and, and basically schooled him. And, and then that then played itself out within my relationship with him. When I then started making that decision that that was the life I was going to choose... He started, and he used to reference it to me, like when he got taught how to engage in that lifestyle for being a young man. That then when I made the decision, that's that I wanted to do it. He then started becoming the person that schooled him. He started becoming to school me um, in the regards of, and again, it sounds, it feels very weird talking about this today because obviously my life's so far removed from that, what it was once before in the past. But like the, the, the facts of like you... You, you never talk in your house and you never talk in cars because the police can bug them. And you start hearing this stuff when you're 13, 14 years old, um, teaching me how to drive lorries, um, teaching me how to learn and teaching me how to drive, uh, counter surveillance. You learned all this stuff. Yeah, like growing up, like I started learning it. Like, um, and, 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 and one of the memories that really sticks with me when I was a young boy, most teenagers, you drink alcohol when you're growing up, you're on that part, you're learning yeah. about yourself and you're hanging out with your friends. And and I remember one day me and my friends were in a park. We've we've managed to get some cider, um, got drunk. I've gone home. I'm being sick, and I the, the cider was in my school backpack, and my school backpack was left in the bush next to where we lived in this like little fields. And some old lady walking a dog found the backpack, opened it up, all alcohol. She's gone down to the local police station. She's dropped the bag off. Then the police station opened it up, found my report card, phoned up my school. Got my house number, the, the police officers then phoned my mum up, said, your son has left the bag down here, he's got alcohol in it. Obviously, they know I'm young. Can you can you bring your son down? And obviously, probably want to scare him a bit to not drink. And so my mum takes me down to the police station, sit in the, in the room with the police officer. And the policeman says to me, who's you with? And I told him. I didn't think nothing more of it. Like, I'm 13 years old. Like, I, I just told him. I said, I was with my friends from school. I go home. Um, stepdad comes around like he did every every now and again, like every other week and stuff. And and um, he found out that I had told the policeman about my friend. 
And he wasn't mad the fact that I was drinking alcohol in the park. He was mad because I told the policeman about my friend. And I'll never forget, he said, you never, ever, ever inform on your friends. And, and, and that had a really, again, had a massive impact on my psychology um, about loyalty, my relationships towards people. Um, he used to say to me as a kid, never trust women. He said to me all the time, like pillow, he used to call it pillow talk, like, cause you're just susceptible to, you tell a woman something, you cheat on her or you get divorced. And the next thing you know, she's standing up in court testifying against you. And I'm a young boy and I, you're absorbing all this stuff as a young kid growing up. And it started, it starts, starts to have a quite a big impact on your perception of the world and what people are and your perception of loyalty um, to other human beings. That, that becomes your normal, right? That is, yes. that's what you know yep. to be the norm and you're, you're getting educated by mm. your stepfather. Mm. So this is what you think. Mm. You, you think this is the way mm. to behave and this yep. is the way to act. Yep. At 12, when you found out about how your stepfather was probably getting his money, do you remember a thought process at that time? Do you remember thinking, should I talk to someone about this? Should I have a chat with my mum? You know, or was it just too? Was it too overwhelming? I mean, what can you remember? What I, went through your head? I, I think it, at, at that age, it's very exciting. Um, yeah. It's very cowboys and Indians. Yeah, and then you're you're around these men because bear in mind, this isn't just him now; it's his other men that they're living their lives like a million miles an hour. They've got a fragrant disregard for law. It, it, regulations law doesn't apply to them. So if you're a teenage boy and you're around men that are 30, 40, 50 years old and they've got that outlook on life and they're all incredibly wealthy and they've all got big houses and they've all got nice cars and they do what they want when they want and no one tells them what to do, when to do it. Um, they've, they've completely taken themselves out of society. Like they, it's intoxicated. Yeah, no, it is. As a young boy and it, and it was, like it genuinely was. <clears throat> Again, like looking back on it, I didn't have the awareness then to see, I mean, obviously I, I didn't have the maturity how you can get sucked into that, to that mindset as a kid because I didn't have the maturity and I, and I didn't see anything else. Um, and this is what, this is why I'm so passionate about today. Like I genuinely understand when young people make these poor life choices, why, how, where their mind's at when they make it. So it doesn't matter how driven you are, how ambitious you are. When you get older, you want to do these amazing things on British Telecom or you only know what you know. And suddenly if your life, that lens gets bought in and everyone else outside that world is abnormal. Yeah. Everyone else is abnormal. Like your life, these people are normal and everyone else is abnormal. And, and again, I, I can tell you a story one day. And it, again, it had a profound impact on me when we was driving through an area of Kent and my stepdad had this Porsche 911 and it was a limited edition car. There was, there was 200 of them at that point in this country. And he, and he, and he was telling me this. And we're driving along. We stop at a set of traffic lights. And I'm sitting in the passenger seat, this Porsche. And you know, he said to me, look out the window. And I looked out. And he said, these people are all like sheep. And, and I didn't know what he, was, what he meant. And I, and I was, what do you mean they're sheep? And he said, they're all slaves to the system. And he said, the system takes from them and we take from the system. And, and again, I, I, it really did have a powerful impact on me because then what then happened when I started going to school, my teachers become the system and they become my authority. Um, and how unfair the system was, like these people went to work every day, they paid tax and the system above them was corrupt. And these people did what they wanted when they wanted. And and that and again, as a kid, when I started doing, going back to school, I was like looking at my teachers and thinking, you're part of the system or you're part of the state. And then as much as I love learning, which I did, like I love history, I love geography, I loved, I was inquisitive, suddenly I end up hating my teachers. Um, and then I started then completely disregarding my education, completely. Started truanting from school. Um, I had no interest in it. Because to me then it was like, 
I'm not going to engage with the system. Like getting an A in English or maths isn't going to get me what I want in life. So it was just ingrained in you that you don't engage with the system. You don't yeah. play by the rules yes. of the system. Yes. The system is the enemy. Yeah. The system is the enemy. It doesn't matter who that is, yeah. whether it's the police officer, the school, doesn't matter anyone of official authorities, mm. yeah. it were, is someone not to engage with. Yes. And you and your life becomes dictated to by your set of your moral compass. So like when I was growing up, it was instilled like I couldn't even I couldn't even comprehend um, ever 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 laying a finger on a woman. Like couldn't even comprehend it. Like that was a big no no. Doing anything towards people that went to work every day, big no no. Burgling someone's house, big no no. Selling selling heroin or, or crack coke, a big no no. So you're governed by your own sense of morality but not what society tells you what's right and on what the lawmakers tell you what's right and wrong. In one level, it's empowering to think, well, society's not going to tell me how to live my life, right? You know, it's interesting that you wouldn't, obviously you're taught not to touch women, not, not to harm women, not to harm people who go to work, mm-hmm. you know, not to burgle people's houses, but you can burgle a bank. Yes. Because the bank's the system. Yes. Yes. So even within that sort of, I guess, criminal activity, there's a code. Yeah. There is a code of conduct yeah, yes, which you're totally. expected to abide by. Yeah, hundred percent. And 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 that was and, and that sort of that that mindset. Even when you go and go to prison, um, you, you you get treated differently because of this. Uh, when when I went to prison, like the 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 prison officers would treat people that they class as serious criminals, like people that are involved in serious and organised crime, completely different to how they would treat common criminals that were stolen or stolen someone's car or burgled an old lady's house. So there was a, a hierarchy. So within crime, um, with with the people that I was associating with as a young man and as a man, were at the top end of the hierarchy. So then when you then went to prison, you was then completely treated completely different to other other prisoners. But that's fascinating. So just, just expand on that a little bit. So are you saying that you got preferential treatment in prison compared to people who did lesser crimes? I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Is that, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Like 100%. Wow. So prison officers would treat you completely different to to how they would treat normal, what they would class as normal prisoners. And, and why is that? Is that a fear of retribution? No, it was, it was, it was respect. They respected you. And, and, and again, this is, so I remember when I went to prison when I was 18 years old, first time I ever got arrested, right? In my, like, properly so forget about when i was a kid with a bag um at school with, yeah. with the cider but as an adult 18 or say an adult i was a teenager um go to prison um and because of um police intelligence because of my stepfather and all the people that they saw that i was hanging out with when i was under a police surveillance operation when i go to prison if you're under the age of 21 years old you can't be kept with adults over 21 in prison in this country you're classed as a young offender so you go to like a young offenders institution where it's like between the ages of 18 to 21. Um, but because the police believed that I had the means to escape from lawful custody because my stepdad and all of his friends, most of them have tried to escape over the years and people that I'd been seen with, I had to then be what they defined as being a category A prisoner, which was the highest level of security you could put a prisoner on in this country. The problem then was... There was nowhere in a young offender's prison estate where they could put a category A prisoner because it was so rare. So what ended up happening, they had to then put me in an adult prison because I was too high security to be kept with young offenders. So I go to this adult prison. I'm 18 years old. I'm in a segregation unit when they moved me there. They explained to me what's happened. They said, you're, you're category A. 
this is what's happening. We can't put you in a young offenders institution. You're going to go up on a wing. Are you going to cause trouble because you're a young man? And normally what we tend to find in prison, the younger people, because of testosterone, the inability to be able to control their tempers and stuff, they're more wild in prison. Far more hard, they're far more harder to contain. Um, they cause more issues to the prison yeah. service. So they were worried, I'm going to go into this prison wing um, and I'm going to start causing loads of trouble with all these grown men that have been in there for years. So I said I wasn't. So you know, I go on there because, um, again, I, I was taught how to conduct myself. Like, I didn't want to show any weakness. Um, so I didn't show any fear. So when, I get, when, I'm, in that, when I'm in that situation, um, people often say, well, how did you feel? Not, but I had no respect for the system. So when I go in there, I showed it no respect. I didn't, I didn't fear it. Um, it, it, it was already normalized to me in, in regards of, like, I'd heard men talk about what prison was like and stuff. So when I go into this wing and straight off the bat, prison officers are like lavishing praise on me because they're like, oh, you must be really serious. Like you must know some really serious people because you're so young and you're on this high level security. And then suddenly all these men that are in on that wing, and I'll never forget it. Like there was guys in there that were committed of drug trafficking and armed robbery and like serious, serious criminals. And they're lavishing this praise onto me as a young man saying, oh, you must have a lot of bottle. Like if you're in this situation, you're on this level of security at such a young age, like you must be really game. Like meaning I was, I would do a lot of stuff. Um, and, and, and then that starts playing into the psychology and it, you, 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 then you're getting, you're getting praise off people. Like as a young man, yeah. um, it then it forms your identity even more and it reinforces that this is my life, like not prison, but this is my life. These are the people that I look up to. These are my peers and, and people that I respect. And it, and I feel embarrassed today saying this to you because it did, it, it like, look at when I put myself back in that situation and how I used to idolize some of these men that now I was saying the, when I growing up, I, it meant a lot to have that respect shown off them. That now when I look back, I find it embarrassing to say as a young person, I respected those people and and not I craved their admiration. But, but in many ways, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to hear you say that because in many ways, it, that your story is really giving an insight in, to, to many, including myself, as to what it's like for some people in terms of your norm is your norm right? doesn't matter what someone else's norm is. If that's your norm, I mean, what do young men crave? You want acceptance. Um, you want, you know, to be seen as something, you know, people are lavishing praise on you. If you're, you know, if you didn't, you know, obviously your father wasn't there. Um, so this is a new male figure in your life who is someone to, you know, idolize, I guess, someone to look up to. It's of course you're going to end up. So it's, uh, you know, Yes, I guess it's it's interesting to hear you say it was embarrass it's embarrassing now reflecting back, especially given the changes that have that have taken place in your life. But in many ways, how can people blame you for doing that? You know, it, do you know what I mean? In many yeah, ways, like, it's, how, how could you have gone any other way? I, I, and, and again, I, I I wholeheartedly accept full responsibility for every decision I've ever made in my life, good and bad. Um, I like. No one ever forced me into doing anything I ever did. I chose to do it. What I did wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a mistake. They were poor life decisions based on what I thought was right at that moment in time. But like you've said, it, you only know what you know. Um, and and, I, and it's for the people listening to this today, some people might listen to it and might not like me. And But I'll be honest with you. And and, and that was how, that was what my life was like. And, and I, everyone that I saw outside of that world was abnormal to me. And I couldn't fathom it. I couldn't fathom how other people functioned in that system that I thought was so unfair. Um, and, and it wasn't like, we, we wasn't Robin Hoods. And I, I didn't see myself as that as such a person because inherently doing what we did or what I did is incredibly selfish. 
and it's all about you and it's all about you being successful and you achieving what you want to do and, and like and because again you don't like my 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 cop out mechanism years ago was I've never hurt no one never physically hurt no one no I've never killed anyone I've never I've never done anything like that but the psychological damage you do to people can be far greater than the physical damage and that took me years honestly it took me to, to, to where I went for that moment of change um, that you start in looking at your life and how destructive that is to other people because you just feel like, well, I've not actually hurt no one. And I remember I used to sit there with psychologists and we'd sit there and, 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 that, and, that, and that's your cop out. Like, well, I've not, I've, I've not, I've not actually had a victim. So, so as part of your, and the, your, the people who were engaging the activity with you as part of your moral code, we don't hurt people. We yeah. don't harm people. So you were actually living up to that moral code. You're like, well, look, yeah, we're taking money from the mm-hmm. system but we're not hurting anyone. But the person that still has to do that role in which to take that money into a bank or to do that person, that person, you start seeing them as an extension of the system and they're not. Yeah. They're going to work. But that's, that's your cop out. And, and, and I'll, I'll never forget, I was in a, I was in a maximum security prison um, in 2000 and it was like 2007, 2008, um, called Full Sutton, which is one of my, my it is the highest security prison in, in the country. And I was on a victim awareness course and there was this old lady that come in, um, the chaplaincy was running victim awareness. Yeah. And I'll never forget, her name was called June. And her husband, or they, they basically, uh, over Christmas, their house was burglarized. The burglars stole all of their, um, lot, a lot of their Christmas presents and her husband's insulin. And it caused a massive issue over Christmas for them. And it destroyed, it ruined their Christmas. So I'm sitting there. There's about four or five other people in the room of us. And... And they were all convicted of serious offences. Like these, some of these men were like multi-millionaire drug traffickers. Right. And we've all got our arm around June because I'm saying, what a scumbag. But I couldn't make the association between me and that person. Yeah. Right. Because I was on June's side. And and that's how warped yeah. your mindset is. Like it, it, like the, one of the guys said, if, if I ever seen him do that, I would have beat him up. If I'd have seen him come around your house and I, I would have pulled him out. And, and we all thought sorry, sorry for June because I she was she was human. Do you know what I mean? Like she was she was an old lady, someone that I like I was, I was brought up to respect. She was a female, and and then it, it, I remember like it, it's bizarre how when it's I look back, it's a different set of rules, yeah, right? It's a completely different set of rules. And then on the flip side, I sit with a psychologist writing my sentence plan, and we're talking about victims, and and you say, well, not really. I've not got none. And they're like, but you have, like, and and it, and again, it, when I went through the process of really changing. Um, that then you start analysing your life and the destructive nature of what I've done, and it, and it, and it's and I, and I and I think inherently subconsciously that's why I think that's why I, I'm so driven to make as much change as I can today because yeah. it's something inside me like I look back at my life and and like sometimes today like people laud me as, as being an inspiration and, and I'm not like I'm not I'm I, I'm doing I'm probably making up for all the wrong I've done in my life and that that, and that drives me today because it's it, it's probably an inherent subconscious guilt that I've got from the stuff I've done in my past. Johnny, you know, I've heard you speak before, um, and you must have, especially where your life is today, and we're going to get to all of that. Um, you know, you must have shared various aspects of your story many times on many interviews, but I still feel from me there's a real intensity there's a real almost shaking as you're telling the story and I, I I want it's a real um there's real authenticity in the way you're telling it there's real emotion and I get the impression from, from you know we're sitting what two feet away from each other 
it, it feels very much that you're still affected by that. You're still, do you feel you're still coming to terms with some of the things that have happened? Yeah, yeah. because obviously, my, my, I say obviously, it isn't obvious if, if you didn't know me, but where my life's gone to such a dramatic U-turn um, and what I'm doing today, like as, it, as driven as I still am and the inherent characteristics that I've still got, my outlook on life's changed. So if, if, if I could define, like I was, I was probably someone of the mindset like Donald Trump years ago. And now I've gone the complete upper, upper, opposite way round to where I'm at today of my life and how I perceive the world. Um, much more liberal. Uh, so then obviously when you've got that mindset now, it's challenging when you look back to what you was as I was a man. So I was a grown adult. I was like 25, 26 years old. I was sitting in maximum security prisons. Um, the way I perceive life, like I feel ashamed that I, I used to see life through the lens um, like a hierarchy, people weaker than others and people were stronger than others. And, and um, like being in prison, that, like we, we, we used to sit there in prison and I remember having these conversations with people, like, I couldn't even dream about this now because my life, I, I see life so differently. But like when, when I would be in prison and like we, we would think that society, we were the higher part of society in regards of like the system fears us so much, it has to take us out of society because we yeah. take from it. And I, I look at this now, and I don't see anyone being any different. And I, and I mean that. I genuinely mean it. Like, I, I wouldn't treat the Queen of England any different to how I treat a kid that was growing up in a council estate or, or a kid that was sitting in a young offenders institution serving a life sentence for murder. I would treat them equally as the same. That we're all equal as human beings, and I don't see anyone any different. And that, so when I then can take myself back to that point in my life, when I thought like that, it does make me feel ashamed that I used to think like that. Um, and that's probably why I'm so passionate today we're trying to reiterate the message that i do that we are all equal as people and everyone should be given an equal opportunity in life to have success because we're no different from each other we're all one person like we're, we're human beings we're on the planet at the same time um and i, and I feel again i don't i don't often sit there and really think about it like this but as we're talking about now it that is probably one of the big reasons why um i'm so passionate about doing what i'm doing today and and, and i can remember like uh like when when my life changed and I come out of prison, I was so determined to um, make up for my past. I'd say yes to everything, right? So if a school wanted me to go in, yes, I'll do it. If a charity wanted me to go in, yes, I'll do it. And I said, yes, 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 yes to everything. And I dug myself into this massive hole, right? I got ill. I kept getting sick, sick and colds. I, I, I overtrained. Yeah. I was trained as a full-time athlete, but I felt so obliged and obligated to be known as this different person yeah. that I was a good guy that I wasn't that scumbag that spent all these years in prison that it was de detriment to my own health um and 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 that was how passionate I was about when I come out about making up for the all the wrong that I'd done in my life um and it was I, I remember I used to say yes to everything and my really close friend Terry said like you you cannot keep doing it like you can't keep driving across the country driving a thousand 1500 miles a month going to all these community centers, doing all these talks yeah. every single day because you're going to end up making yourself really sick. And even if you crack, even you're no good to anyone. You have to look after yourself yeah. physically and mentally. But because you're so determined, so driven by my my wrong past, I, I wanted to close a chapter on that. And I didn't want to be defined by that. I wanted to be defined as the person I am today. That, I mean, and that in itself is so relevant to every single one of us. Just because you made certain decisions, whatever those decisions are, 
doesn't need to define you for the rest of your life. You know, we we have the opportunity to change. All of us do, no matter where we think we currently are. Even, I guess, if your situation seems insurmountable, I think change is always available to us. And I guess, for you know, there's so much to your story, but, you know, I, I think I'm remembering rights that you were once, I think, were you given two life sentences? And yes. you thought that was... We, I don't know. Does that mean you thought you were going in for life? That, so, so when um, and what were you doing? What, what, what did you get put in for at that point? So when I was, when like I said earlier on, when I was in prison when I was eighteen, um, I got a five year custodial sentence. Um, I served two and a half years of it. I come out. Um, I was a hundred times worse than the man that was locked up. Come out, wanted even more money. Um, to me, change rehabilitation was weakness. So I can remember as a young boy growing up, stepdad, they'd be casually having conversations about someone who went to prison that come out. Um, they didn't see perceive it as changing. They saw it as a person being broken. The system had broken them. Right. So my mindset when I was in prison the first time was they will not break me. Like I come out and I will not change and I will be even worse and I want to make even more money. Um, so I come out, continue to commit crime. Um, the police started watching me. I was under surveillance after a couple of days of being out of prison. So I made a decision. I thought if I lived in this country, in the United Kingdom, I'm probably going to end up going back to prison. So I made a decision to go abroad, which I did. I went out to Holland and I went to Spain because I had like friends and family there. Uh, come back to the United Kingdom after like a year. Briefly, it was only a week for a birthday party. I come back and I, I end up meeting up with one of my stepdad's best friends. Um, he basically asked me if I wanted to commit a conspiracy to commit a robbery. I said yes. Greed overcome me again. Initially, I said no. You said no initially. I said no initially. Why did you say no? Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to Leafyard, a fantastic new mental health app that helps motivate people to take control of their mental well-being. Now, all of us struggle from time to time and need help building up our mental fitness and resilience whether we have a diagnosed mental health problem or not. And science has shown that there are many things that we can do that absolutely will improve our mental fitness, like sleep, exercise, breath work, meditation, journaling. The problem is many of us, despite knowing what to do, we don't actually take action, especially when we're not feeling our best. And this is where LeafYard can really, really help. It's a web app that takes a very different approach to building physical and mental fitness, and it uses proven behavioral science to gently push you to take small steps every day to change the way that you feel. LeafYard helps you keep your mind healthy through a series of regular videos that will teach you how to cope with stress, increase happiness, and build resilience and confidence. One of my podcast listeners who started to use LeafYard has been in touch to say, I really liked that you could get it on your phone and it just keeps reminding you throughout the day, just little things like going for a walk or filling in your journal, but it's never too much at once and it doesn't feel annoying. I'm really glad I gave it a go because it gently nudges me to be proactive and has made a huge difference to my well-being. LeafYard are giving my podcast listeners an exclusive limited time offer, 20% off any LeafYard membership. All you have to do is go to leafyard.com and use the code LIVEMORE20 at checkout to get your 20% off or just go to leafyard.com, that's L-E-A-F-Y-A-R-D.com forward slash livemore 
where the discount will be automatically applied. And if you're not sure, why don't you give it a try? Everyone can try the app free of charge for 14 days. Athletic Greens are also supporting today's show. Now, good quality nutrition, of course, is an essential pillar to get right for our physical health, but it also helps us with our mental health and our emotional health. And in an ideal world, I would definitely prefer it if everybody got all of their nutrition from real whole food. But I know from nearly 21 years now of seeing patients that a lot of us struggle to find the time to consistently do that. That is why I am a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1 by Athletic Greens. One tasty scoop contains 75 whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. It helps support energy and focus, aids with gut health and digestion, and it also helps support a healthy immune system. Now, AG1 has been in my own life for over three years, and I genuinely think it is one of the best whole food supplements out there. It's also really tasty. So if you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of the show, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you can access an exclusive special offer where they are offering my audience five free travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D, a critical nutrient for our immune system. You can see all details of this special offer by going to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. You said no initially. I said no initially. Why did you say no? Because to me, the risk and reward didn't work out. It was like, I didn't, I, I, I looked at it and I was like, I, I didn't like being in the United Kingdom. I thought the risk to the amount of money and so, stuff. So is this the first part of you changing potentially? Or was this, were you? No. No, this it, was just it, more that particular job you thought risk reward doesn't, doesn't add I, up. I'll give, I'll give you an example. When I sat my parole board, yeah, the parole um, the chairman of the parole board, I'll never forget it, looked at me um, and said to me in the interview, you could have come off, I'll never forget this, you could have come off the campus of Cambridge University today and sat in front of me for a job interview, but not, you're not. You're sitting in front of me today trying to get released from a custodial prison sentence. And she said, you treat crime like a corporate venture. You do a cost analysis to everything you do, the risk to reward. And when he asked me originally, my risk to reward was it wasn't worth the risk. It wasn't the fact I didn't want to do it because I was frightened to do it. It was just literally I didn't want to do it because of that. And I said no. Um, but then I agreed to do it. And then I would then tell you today that was the best decision I ever chose to make in my life. Because when I agreed to do it, what I didn't realize, there was a 100-man police surveillance operation watching that individual that I said yes to. And I just walked into the, one of the biggest surveillance operations that the Metropolitan Police was running in London. Three days later, I get arrested with that guy. Um, then, when I got arrested with him, they um, the game had completely changed this time. The Metropolitan Police made an application to the Home Office, and they made me a double Category A prisoner, um, which is the highest level of security you can be on in the United Kingdom. And that meant that when I got put in prison on remand, I had to be kept on a HSU, which is a high security prison unit. And I didn't know what that was at the time. But it's, like, it's a prison within a prison and it's the most secure prison institution in the whole of Western Europe. It was built in the 1990s for the IRA. Um, and I go into this unit. There was eight prisoners. Um, Sheikh Abu Hamza, who was fighting extradition to the United States of America and the 
su- uh, attempted suicide bombers that tried to blow up the tubes. Um, and that that was then my life. You were in there with them? Yes. You saw them? Yep. I was with them every day for two, two and a half years. Um, there was literally, that was my life. Um, you were what, having food with them, having lunch with them? Well, all this, I mean... Well, again, like it goes back to my moral compass again and like, what my moral code was. So like initially when I went on that unit, um, it's very claustrophobic. We used to call it the back cave because it was like banks of floodlights, very tiny, no natural sunlight. Um, you like, It felt like you was underground basically. Um, and I remember walking on the, the exercise yard when I first went on the unit and I saw these guys walking around and I recognized them all from the newspapers and stuff. And I kind of really understood how much trouble I was in. Like, I thought, right. like, I knew I was in trouble. But then when you go on there and you realize the lengths to which the police want to keep you in there and not let you out, I realized that I was probably not going to get out of this situation. And then to me, what they had done in my moral code was, was as bad as a sex offender. Um, yeah. that, that's how I witnessed, perceived them at the beginning. And as the, and I didn't talk to them. I didn't talk to him. The only one that I spoke to um, was Sheikh Abu Hamza. And, and, I, and I remember like when I went in off exercise, he come up to me and he asked me, because obviously going to prison, you haven't got nothing, like nothing at all. I had no clothes like other than what I had that day and stuff, what I got arrested in. Um, and so I had, a, I had a little bag of stuff because my mum, I remember, mum dropped me some stuff off at the police station. Um, but you've got limited stuff. You've got no shower gels or anything. And, and he said to me, do you want, um, do you need any milk? And I said, no, I'm fine, thank you. He said, do you need any food? I said, no, I'm fine, honestly, thank you. And I went to the shower and I come out and I went in my cell and um, he put some cartons of milk, some Weetabix, prison issue Weetabix, and a massive copy of the Quran on my bed. And it was the, one of the biggest books I've ever seen. And, and, I, and I took it out and I said, thank you very much, um, but I'm okay, thank you. I'm like, all due respect, I'm good. And um, he took it and he was fine. And I, I used to have limited conversations with him but the guys that tried to blow up the tube, I didn't talk to at all. And I remember one day, um, obviously we're living in such a small claustrophobic environment in this unit. So when we had association, that meant we was out of ourselves for one hour. We had to be on like the tiny little landing and they had a, you had a, um, a pool table, a ram machine, an exercise bike, a telephone, shower and a, uh, a washing machine. But we had to be out in that area of space so the cameras could see us. We wasn't allowed to sit in our own cells. And I remember sitting there and I was listening to two of the guys that were um, arrested for the suicide bombing, talking to each other and they were talking about their kids. And I'll never forget, I was just, this isn't some night talking about football and North London and, and like areas that, that, that I knew. And, it, and, and I just remember thinking to myself, I'm never going to be in my life in a situation where I'm ever going to meet these sorts of people ever again. And again, that inquisitive nature of me come out and I wanted to understand them. I genuinely wanted to understand. I wanted to understand, like, because I've always been very interested in politics and political, like, current affairs. And, and I, I've, I wanted to understand what motivates someone to, to get to a point in their life where they're willing, they believe in something so much, they're willing to kill themselves and kill other people. And, and, and I, I found it fascinating. Um, and I made a decision that I would start talking to them. And then I did. And we would talk about a mixture of different things, um, sport, football, um, and then it's, it's bizarre because what then ends up happening is like you're in this situation where you're all on the same side because we're in prison. So you've got the prison officers on one side and the prisoners on the other. So it's a very weird situation that you're in with these yeah. people because even though you don't agree with what they've done, you're, you're on the same side of the fence as them, if that, if that yeah, makes yeah. sense. 
and and I just made a decision to start talking to them, and 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 it and, and it was it was very fascinating. Um, to they all denied what they done. They said they didn't do it, which I found was quite interesting. Um, because I didn't, I I couldn't understand if someone was willing to do something, why they would then deny it when they got caught. Uh, but they did, and but that was my life for for two and a half years, and and then I got sentenced, and then I went to Woodridge Crown Court. And I got two life sentences. And the and the reason the judge gave it to me was because he said that one of the biggest factors was because of the, my age at this point, and I was twenty, I was twenty four years old. He said to my like links to the criminal underworld were so extensive at such a young age, and and obviously the effects of coming into court and there was armed police around the courthouse to stop from stop people from helping me break out. Um, that had an effect on the judge, and the judge knew I was in that high security unit. He knew all the the cost that was incurred by that. Yeah. Um, so obviously that's already filtering his lens of, of this young man in front of me. And he said, whatever sentence I give you today, you're going to come out a young man. And he went, I believe you always pose a risk to the public. And he went, so I'm going to impose a life sentence for conspiracy to rob. And I'm going to impose another life sentence for possession of firearms with intent to commit robbery. And, and I remember like, I, st- I stood there and I didn't, all the metropolitan police were like the robbery squad were, were down in the footwell. And obviously they're looking for a response from me. They want to see, like, you know, they are. They're looking and they're smiling at each other and they're patting each other on the backs. And I just didn't show any weakness whatsoever, like, because I just thought I'm not going to give you the satisfaction. And, and I, um, and I, and I laughed. And I just smiled at them because I didn't have any, and I didn't have any. I had no doubt that I wasn't going to sit in prison for however long that judge thought I was going to sit in prison for. Because my mindset back then was, the first opportunity I get to get out of this place, I'm going to take it, um, and I'm not going to sit in here for the rest of my life. Um, and so that, you're not going to let the system beat you? No, no. And, and the first opportunity I had to get out, I, I'm going to take it. And they take me back to the high security prison unit. And every um, 28 days, someone from the home office used to come in on the unit because there was obviously very high profile prisons on them, people that were threat to national security. They would the, the person from the home office would come on every 28 days and just speak to everyone. Um, I wasn't a threat to national security, but I'm there. But they obviously know who all these people, the yeah. men are, because this has to be signed off at a very high level in government to justify keeping on it. And I'll never forget this lady sat down and I'm moaning. And I was saying, um, I went to get on the main prison block. I didn't want to be on this unit. I said, like, I, w- I want to go on the main prison. Because in my head, I'm thinking, the quicker I get out of this unit, the quicker I get over there, the quicker I'm going to progress through the system, and the quicker there's going to be a, a little chink of light for me to get out and get back, get my freedom back. Yeah. And she sat there and she had this smile on her face and she said to me, we're not stupid. She went, I know people like you do not change. And she went, the first opportunity you get to run for that wall, you'll take it. And she said, you aren't going to get that opportunity. <laughs> and she was 100% right. Like, obviously I didn't acknowledge that. And I sat there and um, she'd left. And then a couple of days later, they transferred me to a maximum security prison in Yorkshire, which was full sum. You know, you said you wouldn't show any weakness externally. Did you feel a little bit broken internally? Did you feel, oh man, you know, I've, I've really done it this time. I'm, I'm, I'm stuck here now. I mean, what was, you wouldn't show it outside, mm. but were you at all crumbling on the inside or were you, you know, the thing that, that gets me about your story, John, is that it's going back to the cycling. We're, we're talking about the start, which we're doing next mm. weekend, right? It's this strong mindset that you can apply, I guess, to anything. Mm. And back then you were applying it to 
you know, the criminal world. You're applying it to how do you know, uh, look, if someone like me, for example, if I got sentenced to two life sentences, I'd probably crumble and crack. Like, you know, the thought that you don't have your liberty, your freedom for, you know, when you haven't... Because, but that's environment again, isn't it? It's because yeah. your life isn't normal to you. My life, that was normal. Yeah. Like my my my, my uncles, my cousins, my uncle spent 25 years in, in prison for committing the biggest armed robbery in the world. Sold 26 million pounds worth of gold bullion at Heathrow Airport. So that massive cloud hung over me as a kid, as a young man, as a man. Um, went into the prison system. Everyone's always talking about my uncle, the prison officers, because they know who he was. So there's a bit of notoriety yeah. and a bit of kudos in but, some ways. But it's but, but that because it's it's not your norm. Yeah. That you you would like most people would. Most 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 people that go to work every day, if you put them in prison, if you give them a parking ticket, it it has a like an impact on effects yeah. on their life. But when that's your life and that's what you know, that's what you know. It comes back again, it, it's environment and it's it's exposure to events. Do you think with hindsight, any part of you was cracking on the inside or do you think you were totally okay with it? You thought there was just another obstacle to overcome? Yeah, there was another obstacle to overcome. I didn't, like, because I didn't, like I said, when he, when he sentenced me, I had no I had no desire or I, or, and I didn't anticipate whatsoever for one moment that I was going to end up spending whatever time he thought I was going to end up spending there, I would not spend in there. Because you knew you'd play the game that you had to play to get out or yes. because you wanted to escape? Yeah, yeah, no, I wanted to get out as quick as I humanly could. So it didn't matter which way I did it. It was I just wanted to get out. I wasn't going to sit in there for the rest of my life. That was not going to happen. Um, did I read a story once that you were in um, solitary confinement and you voluntarily stayed in there even though you could have come out yeah. to prove a point? Yeah, like that That was when I was, that, go, that goes back to when I was nine, 18, 19 years old. Well, I was, I was 19. Um, and it, it, was, it was all about, so they basically... The prison officers tried to take my clothes off me um, to put me in a special suit when I was 19 years old in prison, which is bright yellow. So it's to identify you in the prison as you're walking around as an escape risk prisoner. So there wasn't that many people in the prison, but basically it's because obviously everyone's wearing grey tracksuits, then someone's walking around in canary yellow tracksuits. So all the prison officers know we need to look out for that guy because he's highly risk. He's highly got the potential to try to escape. I refused to give him my clothes in my cell. So they escorted me down to a segregation unit I then went in front of the prison governor the next day and you, in prison, you've got a con- conduct of rules and regulations. So it's like the law. And the I refused a lawful order in prison. So the governor said to me, you refuse to give your clothes over. You wouldn't go into the escape suit. At this point, I'm in it now because when you're in the system, you can't beat it because you're in their world. They're not in yours. Um, he said, I'm going to give you seven days confined to cell, which is basically in a segregation unit away from all the other prisoners. At the end of that seven days, they come to me, they open up the door and they said, when you go on the wing, you've got, you've been allocated a wing cleaning job. And again, my, my disdain for them, I was like, there's no way I'm going to be a wing cleaner. So they said, you refuse another law for order. I said, yes. Then they took me back in front of the governor again. The governor gave me another seven days confined to cell. And he smiled at me when he gave it to me. And then he took me back to segregation unit. And when I was in prison as a kid, um, I never wanted to be institutionalized. And I, I, I remember um, I asked um, my uncle this one day, I said, how did you not become institutionalized? So to me, in my mind, prison was not going to be my world, right? So I made sure I stay connected to the real world. So I used to listen to the radio and I used to read newspapers every day, stay in connection to current affairs. So life wouldn't just pass me by. So I wouldn't sit in prison and for two and three years, life would just carry on. And, and that's where the issue stems with a lot of people. Like 
their life goes on pause and then they're out of reality and in this little cocoon bubble of like of of it's it's not reality like you're yeah. in this little cocoon bubble and and I wasn't going to be one of these people so I made that decision so I, I made sure that I stay connected to current affairs and I read and I wanted to I went to read and I was like again because I love learning so when the librarian come around with a with her trolley you was allowed to take two or three books off a week and then she'd come out next week and then you could put a request in or she'd just have whatever she had on the trolley. And there was a book on the trolley. It was about Nelson Mandela. And I started reading it and there was a, there was a passage in it when, when he was in prison in Robin Island that he used to smoke tobacco, cigarettes. And he realized that the prison officers was using the fact that he smoked tobacco as a punishment because they was able to take something away from him. So he never smoked a cigarette ever again. He relinquished that power to them. So they couldn't take it off him because he didn't smoke no more. So it stopped him from smoking. So if he smoked, then... They could take that away and and redraw it. Yeah. Yeah. So he gave it up. So he says, you can't take that from me anymore. Now, I'm not professing to be like Nelson Mandela here, but what I'm saying is when I read that, I then thought in my mind as a 19-year-old boy in prison, if you think by putting me in this tiny little six by 12 foot space is a punishment, I'll take it away from you. So when they then come to put me on the wing, I said, I'm not going. Because they put me in there for 14 days thinking they were punishing me. So then I refused to leave it. And I said, no, I'll stay there. <laughs> and and that, that, was, that was something where when I look back retrospectively, because I spent literally 365 days locked in a room. I didn't come out to use the phone. Um, I didn't take exercise outside. Hold that on, so- let's, just, let's just say that again. So for one whole year, yeah. I stayed in that room. And, it, and I, I, I won't I come out, like even Christmas Day. And you were 19 at the time. I was 19. You see, are- I can't, I cannot, like, of course I can't get my head around that because it is, it's so alien to my norm. I guess even for you, that was alien. That wasn't even your norm, but you took it within your moral compass. That was your way of was, not letting the system yeah, it, take it. It, it was me being defiant. And, and, it, and it's interesting. It's, I'll tell you why this is fascinating what I'm about to say now, because this is something where my life's progressed Three, two years ago, I did a, a talk to some students studying criminology at Nottingham Trent University. And there was, and it was funny because I didn't know this at the time. But we was in this auditorium, it's pitch black. Um, you, can't, you can't see anything. Um, and at the end, the professor, when it was all done, all the students were leaving, the professor said to me, that's absolutely incredible. And I said, what do you mean? Because normally when I stand up and talk, even all you see is this little glow of white where students are just on their phones when I'm talking. But with you, when I stopped talking, it, it was black. Like everyone was listening to what you were saying and no one was on their phones or anything. And then he's, we, we were talking because obviously he heard me saying what I'm saying to you now. Um, they, the students and him found it very fascinating. Again, how the mindset can be redirected and changed. And he was talking about the, um, the, the sort of defiance. It was that me regaining control of my environment and not letting the environment control me. And then he then said, do you think, and it was something I never processed and thought about before, when you started exercising, why did you choose to do it? And I said, it made me feel alive, which it did. So I never, I wasn't athletic. I wasn't driven by sport as a kid. I had no interest in like being an athlete. But when I was in that prison cell for that 365 days, I had to develop a coping strategy of being in that containment of, of being alive, like feeling like I was a human. Like someone said to me once, when you go to prison, you don't live, you just exist. And I wanted to feel like I was living. So I started training. And that was how I used to see that situation. And he said, but do you think 
it was more of a defiance in you saying to them, they can't stop you from doing that. Like you've regret, you've created your control in that yeah. space by you reading what you want to read, you training when you want to train and them not being able to tell you that. Um, but when I learn, look back on that situation now, and I think what I've done the last year of my life, like in 2000, since 2018, 2009, I, I realized what a massive chunk of time that is. But when I was in that mind space as a kid, as a young man, um, yeah. It, Were you training every day for a year? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, on one level, I totally get that. I mean, obviously I can't, you know, I think I'm quite good at empathizing when people are struggling, but I, it's so hard for me to understand that you, not quite voluntarily, but yeah, on many levels voluntarily put yourself in a tightly confined space for one whole year as an act of defiance. But I do absolutely get this idea that if you read what you want and you train when you want in the way that you want to, you've got control. And I think for any human being, when we feel we've lost mm. control over how our life goes down, over the little things that we want to do day in, day out. You know, I'm a doctor. I've said many times before, I see an issue with patients who are chronically unwell when they feel that they can't do anything to influence what happens to them. And they're just... They have to be at the beck and call of their illness. I, I see that as being, it can be it can be very problematic. I'm always trying to give my patients control where they feel, even if they've got a really, you know, they've got something like cancer, but they've got some things that they can do in their own life to actually influence the way that they're feeling. I think that's so, so important. So although it might seem quite distant, I think what you're talking about is something universal for humans. We, we need an element of control. Mm. Otherwise, how would you have survived for one whole year in that room? And, and again, like, this is when all the stars aligned because what motivated me to start that process of, of exercising, I didn't realize, because I didn't intentionally do it for the reason where I'm at today. Yeah. But if I did not make that decision back then with that mindset that I had as a kid, I wouldn't be sitting here in front of you today. Yeah. Because that triggered something inside me physically and it was like this ability that I had that I didn't know I had. Like I lost weight. I got I got a six pack. I didn't do it for that reason. I didn't do it for aesthetics. I did it because it made me feel like I was a human being. But what happened when I made that decision back then, I never anticipated that nearly a decade later, because I made that decision back then for a different set of reasons, that that would then allow me to then go and break three world records and 10 British records on the indoor rowing machine. And, and and that's something I've even struggled with because I didn't set off on that journey to do yeah. that. But because I had that mindset and that defiance and that regaining control back of my environment and that hatred towards the system and that 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 wanting to feel like I was a human again and feeling like I was alive, if I didn't start that process and being locked in that room for 365 days, I would not now be sitting in front of you with all the stuff I've achieved as an athlete. Um, and that's been something for me that it's been really hard for me to even come to terms like, and then you then start saying, is there something else in life where your life's mapped out for you and, and you, you make these decisions and you, <laughs> which you don't anticipate and yeah. it leads to, to, to a different road for you to travel? Yeah. So John, as you're saying that, it's making me think. So John, as you're saying that, it's making me think, if you never had confined yourself to solitary... And therefore, you had to come up with a strategy to deal with that. And so you never started working out. As you're just saying, would you be here today? 
you know, did you know when you started working out, hey, I'm pretty good at this? Because I guess on one level, if you had never been athletic before that, did you know you were any good? I mean, no. or did you just, because you have no frame of reference, yes. right? None. But 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 this this is quite important as well because um it's then you don't then set limitations on what you physically can achieve. So um so obviously when I did what I did in that cell when I I was in that segregation unit and I started working out um you got no like you said got no frame no point of reference. I wasn't training with other people. I didn't realize how fit I was. I lost lots of weight. The exercises got easier. I didn't realize how good or where I was at. Um, get released from prison after that experience. Training just fell off a cliff, stopped basically doing it because I didn't need to anymore because I was out of that situation. And then when I went back the second time, when I was in that high security unit, you re-kickstart the, the coping strategy. So again, half past six in the morning, six o'clock, cell circuit, 90 minutes, two hours, read books all day, read books all day. And that then was my coping strategy through that prison system. Right. So you said two sentences, like yes. you were in prison once, once first time rounds, yep. you can find yourself into this yep. room, this yep. box for, th- for a whole year, yep. you start training, you don't know how good you are, you don't know how bad you are, you've got no frame of reference, you've lost a bit of weight, as you say, you come out with a six pack, but then you go back to your old ways mm-hmm. and you don't train once you're out. Yep. Start taking drugs, partying, drinking, um, high octane lifestyle, everything. Straight back in. Straight back in, million then, miles an hour. Every- and then you go back into prison. Yep. And again, you you click straight back into the lessons you learned last time. This is how I cope. Yes. This is going to be how I get through this sentence. So it just kicks back off. First day back in there, I start training again. Um, again, I'm, I'm unfit. It's like getting yeah, back on a horse. Yeah. I'm unfit because I've not been exercising. So I start training again. Again, my body starts to morph and shape. Um, I'm focusing on my trial. That's sort of that situation of the stress of that. Um, and then... At some points, thinking I'm probably I might be able to get out. Then obviously coming to the realization I'm not going to get out. But the exercise, the reading continues and continues and continues. Get sentenced. Then I'll get moved to a high security maximum security prison. I'll get moved away from those eight people in Belmarsh and get moved to Full Sutton. So when I get moved to Full Sutton, um, I'm in a high security prison, the highest security prison in the country, like convicted prison. Um, men in there, been in there. 20, 30 years, some of them, for wow. murder. Like, it's the real end of the line sort of place. Like, violent. I've never seen violence like it in my life, like, for nothing. Um, people stabbing each other for... In prison? Yeah, for, for like, for nothing. Did that scare you? Uh, it didn't scare me. It was, again, you, you become normalised to it. Um, and, and, and I wasn't involved in the drug culture. I didn't take drugs whilst I was in prison. Um, I didn't, so I didn't have, I just, I kept myself out of all those situations with all the gang. I was involved in a gang, um, but in prison, it was very, very violent in that prison in particular. Start training, going through the process out in the exercise yards. And I remember a couple of prison officers said to me, like, they thought I was in the army before I'd gone to prison because of where I was. It was very regimented, cell very clean. They used to see I was out in the exercise yard doing circuits. And then Christmas come around, um, want to get off the wing, a little bit extra because it's Christmas, so you have competitions in the gym and you get a box of quality street and roses for winning the competitions. And they had, they used to have a badminton competition. They used to have a football competition. Um, they had a powerlifting competition and they had a fitness competition. And the fitness competition, it was called Superstars. And um, the prison officer that used to run it was a man called Mark Elliott. Mark Elliott was from Yorkshire. Um, and we used to call him like Playboy. He was a, he was tanned, 
really muscular, really tight T-shirts. He was the prison officer that worked in gym, but prison officers in a gym weren't like prison officers that worked on the on the wings. So he was a bit of a lad, really into his fitness and training, and he looked he looked the part. And he was the one like he loved fitness, loved it. And he put on the the superstars competition. So he said, McAvoy, do you want to do it? So I said, go on in, I'll do it. And he gets me off the wings to come down and do a competition. And so anyway, I signed up for that. Signed up for the the strongman competition, which was a powerlifting competition. Put my name on both lists. Um, and then just before Christmas, we go down the gym and I do the superstars competition. And when I mean, so bear in mind, a lot of these men have been in prison for a long time. Right? Yeah. And they did exercise as much as me. And I absolutely walked away with this competition. Like no one even got close to me, right? It was kind of like CrossFit. It was like burpees, step-ups, you you would get power, but like you do all these different exercises, run around machine, jump off, run on a treadmill with an incline of 15 and, and and no one got close to me. And I, and I remember when I finished, he went to me like, because obviously the circuit he put on, this was like a competition outside. So he looked how quick I did it. And was like, that is really quick. Like, if you would have done that outside, like, you would have been up there with, like, some of the top guys in the country. I had no interest. Like, it didn't bother me then because like, my mindset was still a criminal. Like, I was but a, You still had that mindset that you'd grown up with. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. I'm just doing this to pass yeah, yeah, yeah. time and I, get out of here. Yeah, and it was like, you felt good. You, you, you got a box of chocolates and... You you had like you took the crown of the fittest man in that prison, and I was down. Everyone was saying, "Oh, you're you're really fit and stuff. Like, you're the fittest guy in the prison," but it didn't mean anything. And the next day, the we did the strongman, and it was um it was squats, bench press, and deadlift, and it was all power to weight. So it was like for your weight, they did the calculations of how much you could lift. And in the whole prison, I was the third strongest man, and I didn't hardly really do weights. The third strongest, strongest in the whole prison. So I was the I was the fittest in the context of the circuit. And then when I did the when I did the strongman competition, I was like the third strongest. And bear in mind, some of them men were male mountains. Like I was like a little dwarf midget in relation to them. Like <laughs> some of them had biceps bigger than my head. Like they were massive. <laughs> and I'm saying this to you today. Now I would have looked back. Now, and if I look back on the situation, you said to me someone could do that. I would say that person is very athletically talented. Um, but back then, it, again, it didn't mean anything. It was just like a bit of bravado in the gym, like you being the strongest and you being the fittest. It wasn't like, oh, actually, I'm quite a good athlete at this. Like, I'm, I'm very, I'm better than most average people. Like, I'm the fittest and I'm one of the strongest in the prison. So anyway, following year comes around. Obviously, in prison, you get this bit of reputation. You're the fittest guy in the prison. And again, I just walked through it. Like, no one no one even come close to me. And the strongman competition, get the same thing kind of happened again. Um, but I'm just ticking off the days. I'm just ticking off the days. I'm doing the cell circuits. Um, I am, I'm doing everything that's being asked of me. I'm going on all the courses. I'm ticking all the boxes. Are you go you're going on all the courses that they ask you because you want to rehabilitate? No. Or because you want to play the system? Yes. You want to play their game? I'm going to give you what you want so I can get out of yes, this. Yes, 100%. I, I was, you, you tend to find um, when you're in that, because I'm in a maximum security prison. I've been in, at this point, I've been in custody for four years. Um, I need to get out of this high security prison because I know I'm not going to get released if I stay in this prison because you'll never get released from high security prison onto the street. Um, but because of I've been such a high level of security going in, they were so cautious to move me out of that, that environment in case I tried to escape. So you have to do everything you're asked to do to get out of that place as quick as you can. So you have to you have to meet all your sentence plan targets that they set you every um and and and, and to be honest with you, it's given me a different perspective about prison reform, if I'm honest, or what this work I do today. Because I've seen it like I've done it. Like I've been when you do some of these courses like enhanced thinking skills, 
and you're given your homework to do and you go back to your cell and your mate has done the course the month before and you copy everything he's done and you just change the index offense to your offense and you hand it in and they give you a mark and they say, oh, it's amazing. You've ch-. like it, It's like school. It, yeah, it, it's exactly like school. And, and, and I'm not... I, I, I believe overwhelmingly a lot of people do want to change. I do think that. I think like you always get the minute few. Like in my regards, in my case back then, my lifestyle of organized crime, it was all about change was weakness. But not everyone is like was like that, if if that makes sense. There's a lot yeah. of people that made poor decisions and, and lack of opportunity again, where if you guide them and show them, like if you would have showed me a lot of opportunities I got today back then, I probably wouldn't have took them. No. I would have continued committing crime. And I and I'll be totally honest with you where a lot of people, if you to give them opportunities, and I'd say the vast majority, they would change the direction of their lives. But I was doing everything that was expected of me and it worked and it did work. And they moved me out of that high security prison and they moved me to a lower security prison. Do, they, do you think they knew, do you think a lot of some of the prison officers knew John is just playing the game? He's not changing, but there's nothing we can do about it because he's ticking the boxes. Well, but this is, this is, the, this is like the catch-22 situation for them then. Because then they acknowledge their own system doesn't work. Because yeah. if they ask you to do everything and you do everything they ask you to do, how can they then turn around and say, well, you've still not changed? Yeah, so you're, you're in their system. And, and people realize that. So when you're in that situation, you know you back them up into a corner where they have to progress you. They can't sit there. So if you're fighting every day and you're taking drugs and you're going against the grain and, and, and you're, you're doing everything, that's, they, they, they can then justify doing it and keeping you in that situation, keeping you in that place. If you're going through the process and you're doing everything that's been asked from you and they're saying their courses work and X, Y, and Z, they have to progress you for that system. And then you have to then be transferred out. Because if they don't, most people would take them to court. They go in front of a judge and say, well, he's done everything that's been asked for. And the judge go, yeah, like if you've said that's what he needs to do and he's done it, you can't legally keep him in that situation. And and, and, it, and it was working. Like You were I, getting downgraded. Yeah, I got, I got moved out of that high security situation um, prison after four years. And then I got moved to a lower security prison in Nottingham, which was a category B prison. So before I was in a category A, so double A, A, now I was in a B. So I'm looking um, at my tariff because you get a minimum tariff. I had to serve a minimum of five years on that life sentence. But when you say, when I say that, people get confused sometimes. A life sentence is 100 years, right? 100 years long or 99 years long. And then the judge sets a minimum tariff of whatever that is. That could be 20 years, that could be five years, depending on the severity of your offense. So the judge warranted that I had to serve a minimum of five years in custody. But when that five years comes to an end, that's then up to the parole board, whether they release me or not. So, but they don't have to. And if they don't, you could technically stay in prison for 99 years or the remainder of your life. So you have to demonstrate you're no longer a risk to the public. So when I was at four years, I had the year left of my tariff before it expired. I'm in a lower security prison. I start doing everything again that's expected of me. Um, and then my life completely changed in 
So th- this is interesting. I mean, the whole story, frankly, is interesting. I'm, you know, we've been chatting for over an hour and I'm, there's just so much I'm thinking about. It is such, such a fascinating story for, I think, the vast majority of the vast majority of people, everyone's got a unique upbringing, right? But I think very few people have got your upbringing and have got your story. Um, you have such a strong mindset, John, that you've applied to everything, whether it was in prison, whether it was outside prison, whether it's what you're doing now. I'm really interested with someone who's got such a strong mindset, how does it change? What, I'm not going to say what broke you, that's the wrong word. What, what was the trigger? What was the catalyst for someone who is that fixed in their mindset and has been exposed to that sort of upbringing? As, as I think the judge or one of the officers said to you before, people like you don't change. So what caused people like you to actually change? I would say in, in my case, it was, it was trauma um, because I had never lost anyone in my life. So when I was growing up um, and when I was a young man, I heard people dying. Yeah. I heard of people dying people getting murdered, people going to prison, um, but predominantly death, like situations. And I was immune from that. That never happened to me or anyone that I cared and loved for. That that was someone else. And then when my best mate died or best friend from it being from, from, from childhood, basically, um, died in a car crash, committing a robbery in the Netherlands, I'd never experienced emotion like it in my life. Like, I could, I, I, hand on heart, I could not remember a time in my life from being a kid to when I was 26 years old, so I found out my dad died, I'm sorry, my friend died, where I had literally cried. I couldn't, I literally couldn't remember a time, like from being a kid. And then when, when I found out my friend died on the phone, um, I phoned up my cousin, at, like it was a football match on TV, and I phoned up my cousin at half time. And I asked, I was just wanting to see if he was watching the game. And he said, I've got something to tell you. And I, I said, what? And he said, are you on your own? And I said, of course I am. Like, what's wrong? And he said, um, that Aaron's died. My, my mate died. And I, and I said, how? And and he told me, even, and at the time it was a little bit sketchy. Like no one really understood anything. He, he died in a car crash in the Netherlands. And and I was in disbelief at the beginning. And I just like, I just, I thought I've, something's wrong. Like it's not him. It's a bit of confusion. Um, and I remember I put the phone down. And yeah, you, you kind of, I was sitting there um, and I just remember like, I, I had this, uh, I had this gold Rolex watch on my wrist and it was a Rolex Daytona and it had a black doll face and it was worth 16,000 pounds and I had it sitting in prison and, and it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, it, it was defiance why I had it. Like it was, it was, it was me being defiant towards the system. Like even though you've taken my freedom and you've put me in this environment, I'm still me, but like, yeah. I've still got money and I've, you can't take that from me. And, and I remember sitting in this cell and, and I realized how one, our precious life is. And, and my friend's life had just literally gone out like a light and he never had children, he never got married. Um, and I realized how pathetic it was the situation. Like, I thought I was winning some sort of war in my head against the system and the state. And, and, and actually I was just basically pissing my life away it was like someone switched on a tap and my life was literally going down into a drain um every day every breath i was taking i was literally spending my life on earth locked in this tiny little box 
thinking that I was winning some sort of war in my head against the system and being defiant. And the following night, uh, because it was quite rare that these English people that were committing crime were in the Netherlands, it made news at 10. It was, IT, it was on ITV News. And I remember watching the news and they showed CCTV clips of the final moments of, of my mate's life. And he was in some shitty supermarket in the Netherlands, spraying uh, a can of CS spray into the lens of the camera. And it froze, the camera froze. And there was a picture still. And I could see it was him because I could tell by his eyes. And I just remember like looking at that TV screen and I was like, I don't know, it just, it just hit me like I looked how pathetic it was, like the situation that, that, that I was in and, and, and it made me look at my own mortality and, and it made me look at my mate that I saw what I, I saw the, where I was at. It, it was pathetic in that context, but how that could have been me and I could have been them, that person, like how lucky and fortunate I was because I could have been shot dead back in 2004 when the police tried to arrest me and my life would have ceased to exist that day in that car park in South East London. And I saw the fact that I was alive as a blessing. Um, and, I, and, and I made a decision that night that I was done. I was done with that life. And, and the following morning, I come out and I went down for breakfast and no one obviously knew within prison what had happened. Um, and I was sitting in this communal eating area and there was these other inmates um, talking to each other. And I, and I, was, I was zoned out. Like I, just, I wasn't even engaged in the conversation. And they was talking to each other about when they got out, they was going to do this and do that. And this person was a police informant. And I just sat there and I thought, I can't be around these people no more. And, 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 I, and I try to use the analogy sometimes. It's like being addicted to drugs and being locked in a crack den because I made a decision that night. I didn't want this life no more. And I wanted to do something else in my life. I didn't know what that was, but I didn't want this life. I wanted to get out of this place, get away from these people. Um, but I was trapped. And I was literally physically trapped. Like I couldn't just get up and get out. Um, and before, I, I, it was the system. Like it was prison officers I didn't want to engage with and I, I, I detested and I didn't like. But now suddenly it, it kind of flipped. And it was the people that that, that were, were, were people in the situation yeah. it, with me as, as prisoners. Um, where before I, I saw myself like them. And then suddenly I'm like, I don't want to be around you people no more either. Um, and I, and I was, and I, and I was, yeah, I was lost because I didn't know what to do. Like I did genuinely, <laughs> it, it was my identity. Like everything that I was as a person was defined by, by, by who I was in the context yeah. of people respecting me because I was in prison and I, and I kept my mouth shut and I got a massive prison sentence and the way I did my prison sentence, sitting in segregation unit and stuff. And people lauded me for that. And then suddenly I realized what nonsense it all was. And the people that I looked up to and people I respected, the fact that they'd spent their whole lives sitting in prison, rotting, and, and my best mate that I loved, they had lost his life down to some sort of bullshit dream that doesn't exist. It, 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 it's nonsense. Like, and, and, I, and, and I was like, I, I need to do something else. But did you almost feel in some ways that you woke up on that day in the sense that you suddenly could see life for what it was. And actually you look back at your previous life up to that point and you feel, who the hell was I kidding? Like it almost as if 
you had a blindfold on. Mm. I, I don't know. Is that, is yeah, that like really, an awareness? Yeah, you yeah, suddenly got awareness. awareness. And then once you've got it, you can't go back mm. because you can now see your life in a very different way. Yeah. But until you can see it that way, mm. you can't see it, right? Yeah. So yeah. you're stuck yeah. in that box the way you are. It's You know what's fascinating for me is that it often takes tragedy or real suffering on some level to to force many of us to change you know you this is a recurrent theme on this show and 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 many people's stories around the world it, it, you need a pain point um before it actually kicks us into action and you know certainly one of the most life-changing things for me was when i lost my dad you know that i think that was the first point when i realized you know i knew he was sick for years i helped care for him but when he was no longer there it was like oh my god people do go away. I mean, you know, he's literally not here anymore. I know it, it sounds ridiculous, but when it when you're confronted with that, it suddenly makes things real. And certainly for me, that was a huge turning point. Like that has been the start of the next phase of my life. You know, all the things I'm doing today, I don't think I ever would have done them until I've lost my dad. You know, it's, I needed that to start questioning me, my life, what I was doing. And what's what's interesting for me about your story is that you had a moment that suddenly put everything into sharp focus and made you realize what a story that you'd created in your head that actually wasn't wasn't real. But then you were still stuck in that place. So yes, you've had the awareness. But when I had the awareness, I could go and start making change immediately. I wasn't stuck in an environment where I couldn't make those changes. But you were. You yeah. were still in, as you said with your analogy, you're still there. And it and it didn't it doesn't matter if you go if you go up to the prison in Governor and you say to him, I've changed. Yeah, I get it now. Yeah. Buddy, I get yeah. it. You know, yeah. I'm different now. He's going to be like, what? Yeah. So you sit there and you've still got X amount of years left to serve of that sentence. So it was, <laughs> to say I was in that moment lost is an understatement because I genuinely didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Other than I didn't want to be where I was at and I wanted to do something different with my life. Um, and then... I probably meet the most remarkable human that I've ever, I've ever had the privilege to ever meet in my life, and and that was the prison officer, that 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 aided me um, to 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 find that belonging and find that sense of worth and direct and change your direction into something and and put that energy and drive that I still had as a human in something productive and positive. So so what happens? You, you're lost. You know you want to make change but it's difficult because you don't know how you're going to do that. So walk us through what happened. You know, who is this prison officer that helped you and how did he help you? And how did you discover this talent that you have, which has actually in many ways got you out of prison and, and completely transformed your life. And now you're transforming many other people's lives with this story. It's incredible on so many levels, but but what happens? So I, um, when... When we go back to that story that I've just told you about the inmates, I needed to escape them. I needed to get away from them. I didn't want to engage in that negative conversation. You don't want to hear it no, around you. I, I, I went shut down from it, right? So I'm, I'm locked. I'm confined in this situation <clears throat> or environment. I want to do something else in my life. I don't want to be surrounded by negative people. I, I, want, I want to disengage from them and disconnect. I go down to the prison gym. Um, there was an inmate called Mickey. He's a little bit overweight, wasn't fit, wasn't like, like athletically fit. In prison, you get three gym sessions a week. Mickey had seven. And I asked him, I said, how, 
how are you getting all these extra gym sessions? Because normally they do it, your wing gets one day, the other wing gets another day, and it's just stop gangs from going in the gym and fighting each other. And he said, I'm rowing um, for a, a children's charity hospice in Nottingham. Um, and I'm rowing a million meters over the course of however many weeks or months it took him. So I asked him, I said, who did you ask? And he directed me to the person that ran the prison gym, Craig. So I go to Craig and I said to Craig, Craig, can I do what Mickey's doing? And can I, can I basically row and, um, raise money for, for the charity? So he said, John, if you get sponsorship, so prisoners could sponsor me 50 pence and pounds and you could have money sent in from family and friends to sponsor you for stuff in prison. He went, you can do it. So he gives me the sponsorship forms. I go back up on the wing. Some inmates sponsor me a pound. I, um, my mum sent me some money in for sponsorship. So I give it to him, hand it in. He writes me a note and it's basically a gym pass. So I, I can go off the wing, go down to the gym every day. So get on the round machine. First time, 26 years old. Never really been on one properly. Like in regards of like, I did it in a circuit, but not like how this, this relationship with me and that piece of equipment sort of played out. So I get on it. Um, I start rowing 20 miles a day, 32,000 meters. And when I was on the rowing machine, I was in this prison gym. Everyone in that place left me alone for that two, two and a bit hours. And I'd look at that, that monitor and I'd go up and down the slide. My technique was horrific. I didn't know anything about technique at that moment in time. And I just watched the numbers. And obviously I didn't understand about endorphins. I didn't really understand about this before doing that sort of length of exercise and then suddenly you're getting this massive wave of like endorphins because you're continuously exercising for like two hours. Um, and, and I didn't have any heart rate monitors or nothing. I was just doing it on fill and went back to town the next day, the next day, the next day, 20 miles a day, 20 miles a day, 20 miles a day. Um, done a million in a month. <laughs> so I rode the first million a month because it was, it was my, my therapy. It was, it was therapy. And it was, it was getting me through again, this situation. Like when I was in that segregation unit for that year, training exercise, but now it took on a whole new significance. It completely transcended me out of prison. And I asked Craig if I could do another million. He said, yep. And then I did another million, which was three months. And then the prisoner said to me, you do know five million meters is 5,000 K and that's equivalent to around across the Atlantic on the rowing machine. So I went back and I thought, that's actually quite a cool thing to do. Like row across the Atlantic, so I rode across the Atlantic on an indoor rowing machine. So I go back to Craig. I said, look, can I do another 2 million? He said, John, if you keep raising money, you can keep going. So now I'm working out in my head, all the maths. And I'm like, if I keep doing this, this is going to get me near to my release date. So anyway, as I'm starting to go for the last 2 million meters over the two months, I rode 10,000 meters um, hard one day and I stopped and the screen paused at the 10,000 meters to 10K and this inc amazing man called Darren Davis, which is a prison officer that worked in a gym in Loudon Grange in Nottingham. He was standing behind me and, and again, you'd think I was making this up. If there wasn't someone else to say this actually happened and he looked over my shoulder and he went, that is really, really quick. And again, you're in a little cocoon bubble. You don't know, like, I didn't know what was good, what was bad. And he left. Next day I went down, rode again. Next day I went down, rode again. And he came up to me the second day. He came back to work and he just basically handed me those pieces of paper. And on it was, was all these indoor rowing records, world records and British records. And I looked at them and, and I could, like, basically beat two of the records. I knew I could beat two of the records there and then. 
and and and, and I had unconsciously woken up this ability in my body that I didn't even know I possessed. And I possessed it since I was a little boy. When I was eight years old. My stepdad came into my life. And, and I had this um, ability for endurance sport. And Darren gave me those pieces of paper. And I went back to my cell. And I don't know why, but it just planted a seed in my head. And, and I went back to him and I said, look, like, I'm in prison. I, I, I probably didn't even think at the time it was realistic. I said, do you think it's possible if I could do one of these records? And he went to the governor and, it, and as mad as life is, he went to the governor called Gareth Sands. Gareth Sands was a deeply religious Christian man. And Darren went to him in his office and, and Darren told me the story and, and told him, and he said, look, I have genuinely believed this could help John turn his life around. Right. And Gareth said, if they will let you validate those records from prison, he can do them. So Darren went away, he got all the information. He explained the situation about me being in prison and I couldn't do it in a public setting, so I couldn't do it outside. And they said, as long as you get two independent verifying witnesses that were police officers, Darren said, look, we're prison officers, that's fine. And you weigh him, because I was doing it as a lightweight man under 75 kilo, and you take photographs and you put a special memory card into the RAM machine, you send it all to us, we validate the records as being legitimate. So the first record I attempted to break was for the marathon, and it was it was 42K. And... And I remember like we had to basically make our own energy drinks because I couldn't have sports nutrition. I had no heart rate monitors, nothing. So like I was literally, um, I was eating raw sugar cane as we was doing it, like the sachets that they would give out in the prison for tea and stuff in the tea packs. They give you once a week with tea bags. Um, and I was doing it on the whim. Like I didn't really know what I was doing. And I broke that record by seven minutes. Seven minutes? Seven minutes. I broke That's it by. That's insane. I broke it by seven minutes. And, and, and honestly... This was a very powerful moment in, in, in all of this because, again, I tried to get this across to young people today. When I was growing up as a kid, when I went back and we go back to the beginning of this story where I talk about legacy and I talk about not wanting to be average and reading all those history books and then developing this fascination with British Telecom and having lots of money, I attributed success to money and wealth. That is what I thought in life that defined you as a human. I thought the more money you had in your bank, the bigger your house was, the more watches you had, the bigger the car you had, was your was, that defined you by the level of success and what value you was as a person. When I broke that record that day, everything I'd ever craved as a little boy, I felt that moment on that gym mat in that gym. And the satisfaction to like work towards something and not being average and not being normal, like an average and, and achieving something with my life and a legacy. For that moment, I was one of the best people in the country at what I had just done and in the world. And then I, I and it made me feel incredible. And, and that's when I made the decision that I was going to use sport and my body to be a vehicle to get me out of that life. And I become absolutely consumed with being an athlete. I went down to the prison library again. Like, like we go back to the beginning of the story in the segregation unit. And there was this little old lady that worked in the library and she was sending out, because she had to put special requests into the outside library to send in books on sports nutrition, on training, on heart rate zones. I started to understand what a protein was, what a carbohydrate was, glycogen. I understood about the heart. I, I, I wanted to become, I studied being an athlete. But the most important part of this was Darren started bringing me in books of athletes, of Olympic athletes. Now, I'd never had no exposure to these sorts of individuals as a young person or when I was in prison. So everyone that I ever saw with my mindset did what I did. 
they were all driven, they're all focused. Suddenly I'm reading books on James Cracknell, Steve Redgrave, Lance Armstrong. I'm reading through these books and all the characteristics that I, I could relate to them. And I'd never seen this group of people before that I could relate to on a level. Like I didn't, I, the only people I could ever relate to were people that did what I did years ago. And, and it even, it reinforced more that that is what I was going to do when I got out of prison. I was going to be an athlete. So within the next 16 months, I end up setting three world records in prison, in prison and eight British records <laughs> on indoor ram machine or at multiple different distances. And I got my first parole board. I think it's a given. I think there's no way they're not going to let me out. And genuinely, like, I've changed. Like, I've genuinely changed. So in your head, you've changed. You've yep. done all this great stuff in prison. You think, I've signed a really yeah. good chance here being yeah. released. I, I thought it was a given. I didn't I didn't even contemplate that it wasn't a given. Like, I, I thought, like, even the, the, the probation officer that sat with me was like, <laughs> she, she was, she says, remarkable. Like, your yeah. application for release what you've managed to achieve is remarkable. So I'm thinking I'm going to go in front of the judge. It's just going to be a tick the box exercise. They're going to sign the thing and they're going to just let me walk out the gate. And, and we sat there and the judge said to me, um, he said, what are you going to do when you come out of prison? And I said, I'm going to become a professional athlete. And he looked at me and he was, he was, an, he was, he was old. He was 75 years old. A little, maybe a little bit older than that and, and he put his glasses on the bridge of his nose and he leant back in his chair with a smile on his face and he said of all my years of sitting on parole hearings I mean, you are the first person that's ever come out and said to me that you want to come out of prison and be a professional athlete but I absolutely categorically believed in what I said I would do I honestly like I was so convinced like I would visualize it when I was on that round machine and I would train I'd visualize when I got out, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an athlete. I'm going to be the best at what I choose to do. I'm going to be successful. And I used to go through this process of visualizing it. And then the more the records are set, the more, the more it encouraged me. But Darren, Darren, my relationship with Darren in his, in his part of this journey was I'd never had a male in my life that had a, an interest in me to be successful for no gain. He didn't have no gain whatsoever. Like he used to come in on his days off when no one was paying him back into prison to sit with me to do records because he believed in me as a person. And we would sit there and and we would talk about his family, my family, and he'd become like a confidant. Like I would enjoy going down to the gym, not just to train, but to actually sit there and talk to him. And he'd bring me in books. Um, and And I actually think like, in some regards, being in prison, it was quite frowned upon on his side. Like he was a prison officer and I don't think necessarily some of the prison officers liked the fact that he formed this relationship with me. Um, because when I got transferred out of that prison, I went to another prison and obviously like a prison officer writing a letter to a prisoner is a big, big no-no. Like, because staff corruption and so on and so forth. So he wrote a letter to the prison that I got moved to, gym department, to pass on to me. So that meant it went to, from prison officer to prison officer to me. So then it wasn't directly to me. So it, it kept it in official channels to wish me all the best, say, look, I know you can go out and you can still be, you can be a successful person. I've got absolute confidence in you. And I remember when the prison officer gave it to me, he laughed. And he said, he went, why on earth is, is he writing you that letter? And he thought it was funny, like, because I was in prison and he was a prison officer. But he, he he said, Darren said some stuff to me amongst the records. And 
when I broke the world record for the, the most amount of meters rode in 24 hours, um, I remember when I was on the mat, there was like blue gym mats in the gym and it was just me and him left and there was a couple of other prison officers and they went out. And I'll never forget, and this, this stays with me to today, and he said, if, if you come out of prison and you come back, it will be the biggest travesty I've ever seen as a prison officer because you've got the ability, and not just physically, but you've got the ability to be able to suffer. And when you put those two things together in a sporting prowess and the ability to suffer, even you'll be unstoppable. Even do not come back. And, and, and that lived with me to today. I always had that as a mantra. Like when I raced today in Ironman, I always remember what he said to me about having a gift and not wasting it and doing something with it. Yeah. So at that first meeting where you were convinced you were going to be released, were you? No, no. They, they, they when I got the parole board, um, because like, the judge said, I've never heard that in yeah. my life, but, but he said, he, he actually said to me, my release plan wasn't based in reality. And he said, um, that he thought I was setting myself up for a failure. And do you know what? I don't hold any hard feelings towards him whatsoever. And, and, and I, I, I made, I made a deliberate attempt when, when I got out and the way my life's unfolded and it wasn't, it wasn't arrogance and it generally wasn't. I made sure that all the police officers or the main police officers that arrested me and the judge and all the people on the panel got a copy of my book, right? And it, and it wasn't arrogance. And I, I wrote in, with the police officer that arrested me and I genuinely said, this isn't me being arrogant. I, I like you to read this. I just want you to know people can turn their lives around and people can change. And, and I thank you for what you did by, by what you had to do as your job by putting me in there because it was the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I just want you to know that people can change and it wasn't the end. And to be fair to him, he did get back in contact via the publisher and just said, tell John, I'm really proud and I'm glad that he's done something constructive with his life. And, and I made sure that like that every, as many prison officers as possible get to read my book. Um, like last year, or sorry, this year at a PE conference with physical education, um, the 180 prison officers that work in the gyms across the country were all given a copy of the book. Just to reiterate to them, I was as bad as what you could get. Like literally I was in the end, I was at the end of the road. You could not go anywhere else from where I was. I was sitting in a, in a double category, a high security unit in, in a prison told that I would never change. It was impossible. So if I've managed to do this, anyone can, anyone can. And I just want to be able to get that message out and let people know that. And with the judge, like, I just wanted to get that across to him that that day, you was wrong. Like I did change. Um, but I understand why you made that decision. Cause I can see it. You saw a man sitting in front of you that had been in prison for at like that point, seven years. Obviously he, he saw I was a high risk to the public still. Um, even though I did all the stuff athletically, he still believed I was still a, a risk to the public and that was his duty to make sure that the public were protected. But I just wanted to let him know, but I genuinely did change when you saw me that day. And I just want you to know that people do change. Do you think, there was anything that people around you, apart from the prison officer, Darren, um, like in terms of thinking about other people who are in prison now and maybe are playing the system or doing what they have to do to survive. <clears throat> is there any way with hindsight that people could have identified, hey, you know what? John has changed out. Something is different in him. I think a lot of the time, a lot of these decisions are based on fear. Yeah. Because if you're the man that signs that piece of paper and you let me out and I go out and I kill someone, it's on your head. 
oh, and it's it? you that's going to fall. It's going to be why did you let him out? Why? And I think there's a lot of risk aversion, and I and I think I think it's starting to change in regards to probation now, um, where before it was very very much more. If there's any risk, don't let them out. But you don't let no one out. And that was what was happening. You had a bottleneck, people going into prison, no one getting out because everyone was so fearful. It's a challenge because obviously sometimes some people don't want to change. Yeah. Um, if you would have let John out, if John wouldn't have changed in, in 2009 and John got released in 2012 as the old John, I would have carried on reoffending. I, I, and I would have. I, I'm not going to lie. I, w- I would have because I, I had you no hadn't desire. Actually changed. Yeah, I hadn't actually changed. I would, and, and, and there are people like that, but there are also people that have yeah. changed. I, it's, it's a challenge. I, I understand it's very challenging because it's it's picking it. And again, that, that's 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 what the difficulty is within the within the prison system. But reform in the regards of a broader picture. Um, I go back into prison. I speak to inmates. Um, I'm a great believer in prevention is better than cure for a start. The cost, the amount of money that's put into prisons and reoffending, like reoffending alone costs the taxpayer eighteen billion pounds a year. Like just people coming out, going back, eighteen billion pounds a year, which is staggering. And then when you go into prison, and you, and I, and again, you go into a lot of prisons. You look at the work that's going on, like rehabilitation, and and they're not able to even do it because they haven't got enough prison officers to unlock people to go to classrooms so like they can't let the young people or people out of their prison cells down to education they're locked up all day so you're locking them up all day and then eventually their sentence runs out you just let them back out into the streets so there's no rehabilitation going on um, and that's why i've been such a big advocate of like I, I think prison officers do a tremendously difficult job like with the resources they've got but you i i, I it's a challenge because you need to put that investment into these places but then also you need to put the investment into prevention of stopping people from going into these places in the first time. And then obviously you go into a bigger social issue with school exclusion and so on and so forth. But as things stand now, I think that sport, which I'm a massive advocate for, and I've been part of a, a wider movement of getting more sports organizations to enter the UK justice system as a way of helping to lower reoffending. Because I think if you go into a lot of prisons, you tend to find, if you said to most inmates, what do you value? They will probably turn around and tell you it will be food, gym, visits. Education will be at a very, very distant lower fifth or sixth on that list. Now, if you can interlink education and and and, and sport, educational learning, become personal trainers, whatever that is, into this 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 area, you can then engage some of the most disengaged people because like I've seen when football clubs go into prisons, because they've got the badge on, they're instinctively drawn to it and they're more susceptible to learning. And, yeah. it, and it does have an impact. Like I, I've seen it with my own eyes and you speak to prison officers, the difference between you going into a classroom and being, again, people that have had horrifically bad experiences in the education system, you lock them up in a classroom and say, you need to learn about William Shakespeare. That's not going to happen. And it doesn't happen when it does happen because a lot of the time there's not yeah. even enough prison officers to let them into the classrooms. Yeah, you say when a football team comes and they've got the badge on and it does something and people want to listen. While sitting opposite you now, you've got another badge on you, a badge that is a logo that is known all over the world, the Nike logo. And to my knowledge, you are the only Nike-sponsored Ironman triathlete. Is that right? There's there's one other now. There's one there's, other Yeah, now. there's one other. There's you one other. First. No, no, no. I was, I was the second. We, 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 just, we transferred. There was one in America. 
Um, but I'm one of very few. One of very few. Yeah, yeah. And one, the only one in Britain. The only one yeah, in Britain. Only, okay. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, that in itself is incredible. And another incredible part of your hero's journey, as it were, is you get out of prison. You finally do get released. Do you, you know, before I move on from that, that significant moment, you, you've obviously been released from prison before, but last time you hadn't changed. This time you were a changed person. So, do you remember what was it like walking out? You know, you're walking out into the world this time, a different John. Last um, time you walked out, you weren't, you were the same John. This time you were a different John. I mean, walk me through that. How was that for you? So when, when you get released after being there for a long time, so I was, I was in there for eight years. I served eight years. Um, so eight Christmases, eight birthdays, eight summers. You will be very surprised it's quite a big anti-climax um, because you you build these dates up in your head and you get it. And then bear in mind, like you, you, I got I got arrested in two thousand and four, and I got out in two thousand and twelve. Right now, you come out and you've been fixated on time all this time, like dates. People have got dates on calendars and like everyone's date. And you suddenly that date comes and you they open up the door, they walk you down to reception, you sign some pieces of paper, and they basically take you to the gate and they and they and you walk out to the street. That's it. And you look around and you think, is that it? Like as 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 quick as it starts, as quick as it ends. And that's it. Like, and it is quite it it that it throws you a little bit because you're like, well, what do I do now? Um but when I got released, it was quite an anticlimax. So I come out, um, I get picked up, I get in a car. I haven't been in a car for, for years. Um the first thing I want to do is stop. Um, at a garage and go in and and, and buy something because I you don't you don't have choice. Now we went out for dinner that night after I got out of prison, and I was with um I was with my mum and anyway, we we went out for dinner, and I remember um one of my friends was very surprised by like my social skills, like I was my social skills were quite good. Like I sat please thank you and the way I was and I didn't seem thrown. And then I thought, you know what, like, I've adjusted, like, nothing, nothing's really thrown me. Like, I'm, I'm cool, like, I'm good. Because obviously you hear these stories, people coming out and they don't know what to do and stuff and they get really anxious. And it was only the next day I went to go shopping to buy some clothes because I didn't have anything, um, that I went into a, a shop and, and it was choice. You don't have choice. And I remember, like, I was indecisive, like, what color do I get? Like, because I wasn't used to being able to get by green or yellow or red because or you couldn't have black because it looked like a prison officer on the cut. And it was little things like that. Um, and then I joined a rowing club, London Rowing Club. So I got out on the Friday. I got released. And on the Saturday, I joined a rowing club in London, in Putney. Called so London. straight away, you're like, right. Yeah, straight on it. I want to try. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be an athlete. Now, this this was quite, this is quite an important part of this because I didn't intentionally do this. It, it was unintentionally, but I didn't realize the impact it was later on going to have in my life. So I get released on a Friday. Athlete, do you want to be a sportsman? Do you want to join one of the best rowing clubs in the country? So go down to London Rowing Club, high performance center. There was all these Olympic athletes at the rowing club when I joined. And I, it, was, it, it was quite weird because I just got released after the Olympics. And, and, I, and I, you're seeing all these like pictures of these athletes up on the wall in the rowing club that have been at the Olympics. Um, so I joined this club because it was high performance, lightweight rowing. My dream was to be a pro athlete. I wanted to be a pro rower. Um, so I joined this rowing club. Now, what I didn't realize, I thought I was going to join this club and it was all about sport. 
but my whole social circle completely changed overnight. Like I come out of prison. Now, no one knew I'd just been released from prison when I joined this rowing club. So this was quite important because I think what this did, this broke down people's preconceptions of what people in prison would have been like because I started forming really strong friendships with people. Some of them were barristers, they were lawyers, police officers, judges, um, multitude of different skills. They did multitude of hanging out with them and you're chewing the fat with them. In the changing rooms, going out. Now, what they saw was this guy that just turned up, wasn't never really rode on the water, had an amazing erg times, indoor rowing machine times. I didn't tell any of them about the records that I had because I knew if I told them, people would go online because rowers, if you tell people stuff within rowing in context of your ability, people will research. If you big yourself up and you start pretending you're really good, people will start going on and actually going, actually, you're not that good. Your results aren't that good. So I kept it really, I just said, oh yeah, like just keep fit in the gym. Just want to try to give rowing a go. <laughs> So no one knew anything about me. So I built up all these amazing friendships. And like I said, like I, it was like I basically, the easiest way I could have turned my, like changed the direction of the amount of my friends that I would have ended up having would if I would have uprooted my whole life and gone abroad. It, that's what it felt like. It felt like I just planted myself in this whole new community um, in rowing, um, made all these amazing friends and and they basically become my sort of support um, network. Like people that... I'll go and hang out with. And um, so my old friends, I completely disconnected from them. Like most of them didn't even know I got released from prison because I stopped writing letters and stuff. So when I come out, I didn't expect, I thought I was, I'm just not going to have any friends when I first get out. But then overnight, I made this whole social circle. I'm, I'm, I'm rowing early in the morning at half past five. And then I'm rowing again in the evening with the same group of people. The next day, I'm going to the gym with the people I'm rowing in the evening. So I was with them basically nearly every single day. Um, and what was quite sort of, I, I, I never forget this. Obviously, my dream when I was in prison was to be an athlete and wanted to be like the best athlete I could be in. There was a female rower called Sophie Hoskins and Sophie won a gold medal at the London Olympics. And on a Tuesday night at London Rowing Club, we would do like a, all the guys would be on the rowing machines together and we'd all be doing the same session. So everyone's in synchronicity. So everyone's bang, like rate 18. So you're going down, up and down the slide, 18 strokes per minute. And I had the Olympic champion sitting on my left and I remember thinking like, my God, like two weeks ago, I was sitting in a prison gym and two weeks later, I've got the Olympic champion sitting next to me, right next to me. Um, and it, and, it, and it, yeah, it, it, it threw me a little bit, like, because that was what I wanted with my life. And, and as I said, I, this, my relationship with all these people carrying and developing. And then, um, cause I was really ashamed of my past when I got out. I didn't want no one to know, um, especially when I joined the rowing club and, and I made these amazing friends and, and they all did these incredible things. Like they won medals at the Olympics. They traveled around the world. They worked in hospitals. They climbed Mount Everest. They rode across an ocean. They, do you know what I mean? They did these incredible things and feats with their lives. And, and I've come out and, and all I've done in my life has caused misery, misery and destruction to people. And I felt really ashamed because what I was worried about was kind of being shunned and them actually going, actually, we don't really want you here. Like, um, and it was a real worry for me at the beginning. Like, I really didn't want people to know about my past. Yeah. Did they find out? They did. What, what ended up happening? Um, I, I kind of got the, I got the sense that some people had found out, um, and I wanted to take the initiative, and I wanted to be the one to sort of tell my own story and me take control of it. Um, so then I made a decision to write a blog, and I, and I wrote the blog, and it kind of went viral with him rowing, um, and it was good because the way the rowing community accepted me. Um, and it broke preconceptions of of what someone they thought someone would be like in prison. And I think maybe, I don't know, if I would have joined, people would have known 
there's this guy who's a convicted armed robber and he spent eight years in prison and now he's joined this rowing club. Do you want to row with him? Maybe some people would have gone, no, I don't. But they built these friendships up with me. Um, and actually I just become John and people, when, when I explained, like I said, I wrote the blog and people read it. I think people could understand why I did what I did. Um, again, I, I didn't, well, no one made me do it. I mean, John, it's, it's incredible on so many levels. I mean, Look, obviously, I don't know the people you befriended in the Brewing Club, but if you're talking about barristers and doctors and Olympic athletes, a lot of those guys, I'm sure, you know, had had amazing experiences growing up, like amazing opportunity. You know, as, as you've demonstrated with your story, how you bought, how you brought up, what you're exposed to, that defines your reality. You know, yeah, I became a doctor, right? My my dad was doctor, his family were doctors, all my parents' friends were doctors, right? So for me, actually at that point, getting into med school was actually no big deal in the sense that that's all I was surrounded by. Um again, I'm not saying I don't I'm not very proud to be a doctor. I am, but I'm just I'm simply saying that actually what we're surrounded by, um, it very much limits or or defines what we think yeah. is possible, right? So it's it's so it's so lovely the way you did it, where you got to know them. They got to know you for who you are, befriended you, rowing with you. And then it comes out. Was there any backlash? Did some people shun you after that? Do you know what? Not one person. Not one. It, it literally, the the way it was received um, and the support in which I received after it, I would say that people were more willing to reach out and help me even more on the quest than what I chose to do, which was be an athlete. And I mean, like a lot of them, bear in mind, some of these were Olympic champions that were willing to come down and row with me on the water to teach me how to row because they wanted me to be successful. And that went all the way from like amateur rowers at the club all the way up to Olympics. And, and I, I was very fortunate, like two years ago, I got asked to go to Caversham, which is where the GB rowing squad yeah. train. And I got asked to go down and speak to all the athletes, which to me was a massive honor because like that was something I wanted to do, yeah. like... And to go to go into that high performance environment and meet the people that you look up to, um, but that that was the level of in the British rowing that the whole sport just was supportive of me, and um, and and they have been up to up to this day. Yeah, is that blog still online today? Yes, it is. It is, is. It? Yeah, I think it's still there somewhere. <laughs> we'll find, we'll find yeah. it. I'll link yeah. to it in the show yeah. notes. I actually want to read it yeah. because I'm I'm super interested as to what you said in that blog to the point where all, no one shunned you. They just wanted to help you. And I imagine you would have been very honest. And uh, But I'm looking forward to reading that. We'll definitely link to that. So you were training, you know, you've come out of prison. You're a changed person. You want to be a pro rower. You've joined this club. You're training with these guys. But you don't become a pro rower, do you? You go into a different sport. So, you know, what happened there and what happened to end you up being sponsored by Nike? So I, 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 I'm a realist. Um, I was 29 years old when I got released, nearly 30. So I was literally just touching 30, basically. Um, when you go into a sport like rowing, you, you kind of realize it's kind of like swimming to regards of if you've not done it from a young age, it's very, very challenging to take it up as a grown man and get to that level in which you want to get to, which which I wanted to get to. So it's technique driven, yeah, right? It's yeah. highly like people think rowing is a very easy sport and you use your arms. You don't use your arms. 
rowing's a rowing is very technical. It's it's like swimming, and it, it I'm takes, getting to swimming at the moment, and I'm learning, and I'm I'm obsessing on YouTube videos, and I'm trying <laughs> yeah. to watch. Something. I'm thinking, man, I wish I'd learned That's this right. as a kid. That's what I used to do. Like, yeah. I used to sit there watching right at night. I'm in two hours a day at yeah. the moment. I'm watching. Oh, that's how you get in the water. That's how you catch the water. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm obsessed. It's 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 you, but you don't realize how technical yeah. it is until you start doing it. it. It's it's challenging, and and even though physicality, my heart and lungs, and my mindset, I, I had the attributes to, to do it. Like I, I would train with people that went to the Olympics, and you realize that like you're not a million miles off them. Um, but technically, I was light years. Um, and I knew I I knew I took up the sport too late to get to that level. So when I was in prison, I used to watch Transworld Sport on Transworld on Channel Four. I remember Transworld yeah? Sport. So I used to watch that program, <laughs> and on it one day was a sport called Ironman, which was a triathlon, and they were showing the world championships in Kona. And I remember watching this program. Um, and actually, I, I, I'll find you this blog because I say it was a blog. When I was in prison, me and Darren drafted up what my aspirations were when I got out of prison. So just to show you that this isn't me making this up as I've come out and then yeah. suddenly it makes a better story. So I watched this episode of, of Transworld Sport. I see Iron Man and I thought to myself, I'm going to do one of them one day. Right, whilst I was in prison. When I come out, no, no desire to do triathlon or Iron Man. Didn't, like, didn't, it wasn't what I was after. It was rowing. So anyway, I'll get to a point, rowing for six months, and I thought, right, I am not going to get to that level in I am in in rowing that I want to get to. What other sport can I do where it's not team based? So I can't slow other people down because the problem is with rowing, you you row in a crew right. now, but you row row at a crew at your ability level really. So you're not. You're, I'm not going to be put in a boat with with three other Olympic champions if I'm really bad novice. Do you know what I mean? Because obviously I'll kill the boat speed. So when you do an individual sport, it's all on you. So if you put the hard work in and the discipline and dedication, you can't slow anyone down if your technique's not that great. So it was either me row on my own, <laughs> which I wouldn't be able to get to the level because obviously you limit yourself then to how what where you could row in a boat. Like if you're only rowing on your own, you can only do a certain amount of races and stuff. So it was like, right, well, I have to do something else. So I'll go on the internet. I went on Google. I typed Ironman in and... I'll never forget this. There were the only Ironman race I could do was Ironman UK because I wasn't allowed to leave the United Kingdom because I had a travel ban when I got released from prison. So I, I, I couldn't travel without asking permission. Um, and so Ironman UK was the only one I could do and it was in Bolton. So I go into the entry, sold out. There's no entries left. So I'm thinking, right, how am I going to do this? So then there was a, at the bottom of the um, at the, the link there was a there was an entry for via charity. Yeah. So I clicked on that <laughs> and I got in on a charity entry like six weeks out from the race. So I enter it and then I went and bought a bike. I hardly had any money when I got out of prison, so I bought this bike. It was way too big for me. It was like two sizes too big on eBay. Um, got the bike, bought a wetsuit. I had six weeks to train for this Ironman. Now I'm very fit still from rowing. And all the training I've been doing in prison, because I got released from prison, I'm still training. I'll come out, start rowing um, like professionally. So I'm doing 20 plus hours a week training. So I'm aerobically, I'm really fit. So basically I'll go down to Serpentine, start watching videos. I teach myself to basically swim, um, watching these videos. And, and I, I'm in Ironman UK. So Ironman UK six weeks out. Hold on, so you couldn't swim? Couldn't swim. Like so, literally, like literally, like because again, sometimes people might listen to this and go, "There's no way he's done this." So I get released um, in November 2012. <laughs> I was rowing for like six months, 
And then I did Ironman UK in July of 213. So within that space, I was rowing on the water. Then I made a decision to do Ironman UK six weeks out. So I turn up at Ironman UK, teaching myself to swim six weeks previous. Every So when I turn up at Ironman UK, I had never ridden a bike for 180K in my life. The furthest I'd ever ridden a bike was 80K. 180K was the bike leg. And then you obviously have to run a marathon. Yeah. And I've never swum further than 3.8K. So I've never done that. Yeah. So I turn up to Ironman UK and... And I'm, I'm not saying this arrogantly. I'm, I'm genuinely, I'm not no. saying it arrogantly whatsoever. But there was a couple of emotions that happened when I completed the race, right? So when it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't. I wasn't mega fast. Like I did the Ironman. And Ironman, you can't, it's, it's very hilly. So I did it in 12 and a half hours. And I think I was in the top like 150 or 200. And I remember, but when I run down that finishing shoot in Bolton Town Centre, it was, it was smashing down with rain. But I got so emotional because it was like, my God, I feel like I've just achieved something it was so great. Like, because it, it was something I'd done since I've been out of prison. And where yeah. I thought about that in prison, I thought, I'm going to do one one day. And I never expected it was going to be as soon as it was. Yeah. And I thought, right, that's what I'm going to do now. And I did Ironman UK and I've finished, crossed the finish line. And, and I loved it. Like, I felt really emotional and I felt oh, this wave, this sense of accomplishment and achievement. So I thought, that's what I'm going to dedicate my life to. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a triathlete. I'm going to be the best triathlete I can possibly be. Um, and then I went to a human performance lab in Essex and they did like some testing on my heart and lungs. And the woman said to me, um, so I explained to her, I just did Ironman, told her how quick I did it and stuff. And I said like, this is the rowing history I've had in out of hours. She did this VO2 max test and all these lactate tests. And she said, you've got the ability to get to an elite level in, in triathlon if, if you teach, if you train your body correctly. And that was all I needed to hear. And then I, and then I went off. Um, I made a lot of mistakes though. Like it wasn't, it went, when, because what become detrimental to me because I was so driven and I was so determined to be successful at something, I end up not being coached and I trained myself into the ground. Like literally I overtrained and I got virus, post-viral yeah. fatigue. Um, I got really ill. I had to like- Injured? Um, not, not injured, but more um, internally, like when I got sick and I got a virus, I raced, I did a full distance Ironman on a virus and, and, it, and it sent me over, um, it sent me over a cliff and I had to have an ECG and, um, it, 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 but again, it was a learning process. It was having yeah. the awareness. So I didn't have the skill set to coach myself because I was so blinking. So, cause it, again, to me, me being successful as an athlete was my way of proving to the world I wasn't a piece of shit, that I wasn't some scumbag that spent his whole yeah. life in prison and I was actually good at something. And I was so consumed and intoxicated by that, it became my Achilles heel. So because I could suffer and because yeah. I could hurt myself, like I, I, I went, and, and again, it's not arrogant, but I went from basically being a non-runner to being able to run like a sub three hour marathon in training within about eight weeks. I mean, and I used to run around Battersea Park. I used to run a marathon every Sunday around Battersea Park. And every day I did it, what ended up happening, or every week, I'd get quicker and quicker and quicker. And it, it was like being on an ergo again. The splits get quicker and quicker. But the problem is I wasn't recovering. No. And I just kept thinking when I felt like crap, I just got a man up. Like, I don't want it. Like, if I'm not suffering, if I don't wake up feeling like I've got a hangover because my body's so depleted, like, it means I don't really want it. I'm being lazy today. So I'd go out and I would do it again and I'll do it again. And, and eventually you start digging a massive hole and, and I couldn't get out the hole and I end up overtraining and it, got sort of sick. For me, it, it really strikes me that your mindset 
has always been critical in anything you've done, whether good or bad. I don't even like the terms good or bad. They're choices, right? Aren't they? Everything's just a choice. And every choice has a consequence. But there's something about you and your mindset that is it's just incredible, really, um, in terms of, yes, how much you'll suffer, how much you'll push yourself. I What I love about your story, John, is I think it's empowering for, for anybody. I think it just shows what human beings are capable of. But do you think you are special in the sense that you do have some you do appear to have some superhuman physical abilities. You know, you do an Ironman when you can't really swim. You in six weeks, you teach yourself how to swim and you do it. You're not a runner. Yet in under eight weeks, you're, you're, you're running marathons in under, in under three hours. These are just incredible feats. And so have you ever thought about it, you know, that you are like a genetic specimen in no, some ways no. and you are special? No, I, 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 don't, I don't think I'm special at all. Um, I think everyone um, is inherently gifted at something. Like I was, I was having this conversation a while ago with a secretary in an office, I mean the receptionist. So I always like talking to people. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the too. yeah, I love it. Like, yeah. I love finding it's great, out. That isn't it? Yeah, it's just like I was sitting down and the lady's there. She's working, and I'm waiting to have this meeting. And they've kept me in the foyer, and she's chatting to me. And she says, "What are you doing?" And she's she's typing and she's talking to me. And I said, I do, I do triathlon, I do Ironman. She said, I see, absolutely incredible. Like, like I, could, I could never do that. I said, but I could never do what you're doing now. And she said, what do you mean? I said, you've not looked at me once and you've just typed for like minutes. Like she's just, and I said, it's a learned skill. It's a learned ability. You've learned to do that. Like I've learned to be good at what I do because I do it every day. Like you do that every day. And I just think, if, again, like, um, I think this comes back to, I know I might be going on subjects a little bit here, but I often say this to kids when I talk to them, about imposter syndrome. So when I go into a situation um, where like a little while ago, I, I had a meeting at 10 Downing Street yeah. and Theresa May's policy advisors were there and we were talking about opening up schools over the six weeks holiday to make them into community centers. And when I left that situation, I remember quite a few of my friends said like, do you, do you not feel nervous? Like you, you're going to 10 Downing Street and you're talking to all these people that are political aides. And I, I said, but why should I? Like, why should I feel like that? Then they're humans. They're no different to me and you. They just they've gone to university. They've learned a skill set which has allowed them to have a job that works in politics. Like I'm good at what I do because I do it every day. They're good at what they do. We've all got skill sets. We're all good at something. And I and I just think in life, um, I think we've all got talents and abilities and skills, um, and 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 the ability. And I, and I feel like as well, um, everything that we've spoken about here, there was never no self limiters. So I didn't, I didn't limit myself because I had no limits to, to gauge off what was good or what was bad. I just did what I could do. Um, th- th- I never sat there and gone, oh, I can't do that because sub three hours is really quick because that's how yeah. many percentage of the population can do that because I didn't know that it was really it, it quick. It goes back to that story when you were in solitary confinement and you're training every day to get through, to give yourself that control. You don't know what's good. You don't know if 20 press-ups is... It's crap or world class. So you just do what yeah, you can you do. do. And actually, if you have a blank canvas, if you don't know, but by you not engaging with the athletic world, you don't know what's a good time. Right. So you just do the best you can do. I think that is so empowering. You shared a story um, when we had a bit of lunch just before we started this conversation about young people, about, um, was it an underage prison you visited yeah. and the things you said to that girl? I wonder if you could just share that. It's, so like, when, so, um, just just to go back a little bit, because everything we've spoken about so far today, I would always say that it's always it has always been about me. 
like before it was about money when I was a kid. Then I realized I was good at sport. It was about medals. It was about Ironman. And I believed, even when I changed, that I still went to achieve something in my life. And I thought legacy then was by being really good at sport and winning medals and having all those records and having all those placards on my wall and doors. And that would define me as a person by my legacy. And I was consumed by it. Overtrained, got ill, um, fixed that, got better at sport. But then what really changed my life was when I started going into schools, my 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 story started coming out. When I when I made my story come out within the Roman world, but then it started breaching out into the wider world, I got opportunities to go into schools. And at the beginning, I was like, I don't really see what value I'm going to have. Because again, you don't really understand. I don't, yeah. I don't feel what I've done is exceptional. And I don't, I'm me, like I'm John. I've gone through the journey that I've gone through, the experience I've gone through, and I'd never realized the impact that could have on other people's lives. Um, and then I got off from the opportunities to um, a school talk in Essex. And I, and I took it and I went and I did this talk. And at the end, this young boy, his name was called George, followed me and head teacher out. And me and head teacher went to his office to have a debrief. And George followed us out. And he said, sir, can I speak to John? And Simon Cox, their teacher, said, looked at me and he said, look, do you mind talking to him? I said, no, you are standing near shot just in case. I don't know what he's going to say. So I said, oh, let's go. So George looked at me and he was 14 years old and he went to me, I'm like you. And I said, what do you mean you're like me? And he went, I'm like you. And I said, I, I genuinely didn't understand what he meant. And he said, my dad's coming out of prison. Like, my mum's brought me up with my sister. I don't want to go to prison. And he started crying. And honestly, I've, I've, I've never experienced anything like it in my life. I genuinely haven't. I've never, it was, it was such a powerful moment to know I had impacted on that young boy's life where now whatever I said to him, he was highly susceptible to listen to what I was about to yeah. say because he could relate to me. And I said to him in life, you've got an awareness that I didn't have at your age. You realize all the triggers and all the warning signals now but you don't want that life, which is good because I didn't see that at your age. What do you want to do with your life? And he said, I want to work in sport. I'm not good at sport though. And I said, you don't need to be good at sport. You could be a messer. You could be a physio. You could, there's so many other occupations within the sports world that you can do. You're in a school. It's geared up for sport. They want to encourage you and help you and stuff. So, and I stayed in contact with George via, and I used to phone up the school um, and, and Simon Cox, their teacher, used to put George on the phone in the office and we used to, I used to chat oh. to him in the car on the way to the gym um, every now and again, just to keep him in, in, in and and the most, and honestly, man, like it, like Simon Cox phoned me up when he did his GCSEs, and um, he was walking around the uh, the hall, and I'm not there, yeah, I'm not there, like I don't know this, and George puts his pen down in the GCSE hall, and sits back, and Simon goes over to him and says, "What's wrong, George?" And he says, "I can't do it, sir." He went, "I can't do it." He said, why can't you do it? He went, I can't. He went, I can't, I can't do it. And he said to him, George, what would John tell you to do now? And Simon said, I walked away and I looked back and he picked up his pen and started writing again. And when he told me that story, mate, honestly, man, it got like, <laughs> even now it was so powerful. It was yeah. so, so powerful. And then he sat his GCSEs and he ended up getting a C in that, in that oh. grade. Um, and then he, he signed on to college but to have that impact over a young person's life where they listen to what you're saying, um, I realized then that that was my calling in life. And and then I realized that I had this awareness again in my life, which you, you constantly have and you're developing, growing, that legacy is actually, it isn't about money and it isn't about winning stuff. It's about you having a positive impact on other people's lives and lifting other people up. And by me impacting on George's life, 
if George now doesn't go to prison and he has children and those children don't go to prison and their lives are good because George's life's good and their kids' lives are better, all because he interacted with me, that's what legacy is about. It's about reaching back and lifting people up. And I realized I was in such an incredibly powerful position and influential position where not only could I have that impact over a young person's life, but I was able to go and have meetings at 10 Downing Street and go and have meetings with politicians and go and meet big brands and corporations where they wanted me to go in. What that then then did for me was able me to unlock opportunities for other young people to have a better life, which I am happy to say that I am able to do by the proxy of using my life because let's be honest, lots of people, it's the story. And I have always said this, like I, I was very fortunate. I got asked to go to the Conservative Party conference a couple of years ago. Um, it's irrelevant what my political beliefs are, but the fact of being able to have an audience of people that can make decisions that can affect the lives of millions of people, to me, that was an honor and a privilege to come from where I've come from, to be able to address those people. And to have that platform, to be able to influence change, and then politicians come up to me at the end and say, I can't believe you sat in prison for 10 years for what you did by the way you conduct yourself and the way you are and what you've done. And what, what I, mean, I don't see it like this, but what an inspiration you are now. You're an amazing person. You're an amazing athlete. And I say, but you, you must remember, I'm no different to the 90,000 people sitting in prison. I was given an opportunity and I chose to take it. So that's why it's fundamentally important that those other 90,000 people are able to change and turn their lives around and be given the right opportunities to turn their lives around. So it allows me to connect up the dots to people because they can relate to me. So when you sit in front of them, they can look at me and relate to me on that level. And I'm like one of them. And, and that's what's important because then when you can connect the dots up and show them that I'm not different to these people, I'm exactly the same as them. So if you think this about me and you look at me now and lord me, these other people are capable of doing what I've done. I'm no different to those people. I was once that scumbag that was sitting in a maximum security unit with suicide bombers. If you looked at me then, you would say, these pieces of shit never let him out of prison. Where now you don't say that. So it's connecting up the dots. And um, as I've gone through that journey of, of going into prisons, and um, it's been a life-changing experience for me. It really has. Like when the story I was telling you about earlier, like when I, when I went into uh, an STC, which is a secure training center. So it's, it's technically a prison, but they can't call it a prison and it's for children. And, and I walked into this, this environment. I had never seen children in prison under the age of 18. I've seen young offenders, like young men. Um, I'd never seen girls in prison. So I go into this STC and it's a mixture of girls and boys mixed together, but they're on different housing units. And I was asked if I would like to go on the housing unit um, and look where the children slept. And I agreed. I said, yeah, well, I would like to. I was interested to see what it looked like. And we walked on this spur. They try to de-institutionalize it as much as they possibly can. So that they, it doesn't look like it's a prison, but you can quite clearly see there's bars on the window yeah. and stuff. And they've got a sofa and they've got a big TV. And then the prison officer was like walking me down with the governor and we stop outside a massive metal door like I was put behind and he puts the key in and he opens it up and he opens it and then I walk in and it was literally like a little girl's bedroom. And it threw me, mate. Like, honestly, like I can't, it's so hard to verbalize how it made me feel. Yeah. I looked on the wall and there was pictures of a mum. There was letters that a mum and Nana sent her. And I'm, and I, and I was, I was, I was, I was, I was upset for her. Um, but then I was enraged when I left that how young people have failed so bad. Like 
oh, the sexual abuse and stuff that I heard that happened to some of these young girls and 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 it, and it just driven me even more. I thought I need to do more to help provide young people with opportunities yeah. that are, are in those situations to have a better life. Because yeah. it, it, was, it was just so sad seeing such a young girl in that situation and being fouled so bad throughout the care system that's led her, again, only knowing what she knows and the behaviour she's expressed from the, the experiences that she's been through from since she, basically the day that she was born. Yeah. You know, I can see where the strive and you, why it's so strong, why you want to go and use your story, use your life for good. It's... Yeah, it's emotional talking about it because, you know, I, I think back to your life and, you know, you didn't have that, you know, your father wasn't there. You didn't have a strong male figure. So, of course, if your stepfather rocks up and he's going to fill the void, it's like that boy at school who sees you and actually he can relate to you. So now he's got a male role mm. model who he can relate to. Mm. If you don't have that, well, of course, you're going to make maybe some poor decisions. Do you know what I mean? It's I, I, I was genuinely, again, like I was genuinely surprised by the further along the journey I've gone since I've been released from prison, the social difference in this country is and how so few have so much and, and so many have so little um, to the degree where like children, the, like a headmaster once phoned me up when it was snowing. Like, I remember when I was at school, snow day, I was loving it. Didn't have school. I didn't have school. Like you'd be off school for three or four days. I was loving it. And headmaster phoned me up in Essex and my, I developed a really close relationship with him. And he said, I've, I've, we've had to close the school. And, and I've said, I bet the kids love it. And he said, he said, John, he said, I feel so bad because I know today for the next two or three days, probably that probably about 70% of my school will not eat a meal for breakfast or lunch because they're solely reliant on the school providing those meals because the kids aren't eating when they're home because they haven't, they haven't, the mums and dads haven't got the money or they haven't got the food to eat. And then you start doing all the stuff with, I never understood for a moment, like not being a female, but then there was problems with, with girls with tampons. They were truanting from school when they was on their periods because they couldn't afford tampax. And you think, how on earth is it that bad? And then, and then obviously you go into the prison service and you look at the cost that gets spent um, on incarcerating young people, like the chairman of Brentford Football Club coming on a visit to Felt Young Offenders. And he was standing with me and he's a businessman. He's a very intelligent man. And I said to him, I could halve the cost of the Young Offenders prison estate like that overnight, straight away, one decision. And he said, how could you do it? So I said, so each one of these kids today running around cost the taxpayer £75,000 per year to incarcerate in this place. He said, yeah. I said, if I got that young boy over there and put him in Eton into the best private school in the country, I've just halved the budget of the UK justice system over half. So how can it make sense that it costs £35,000, £40,000 to send the kids to the best private school in the country, but £75,000 to incarcerate them in a young offenders institution? If that's not lunacy, I do not know what is. And I don't understand for the life of me why this has been allowed to continue yeah. and continue and continue. And it's like, and when I speak to my friends, there's just no awareness of it no. that in society that this is a problem. Like you see people that they're talking about when we leave the EU and it's going to cost 39 billion pounds. And you think we're spending 18 billion a year on reoffending. And you, and you look at this and you think, yeah. how do people not see these numbers? And it's, we build more prisons. And we're just, 
we're so judgmental as a society. We we look down on mm. so many people in terms of where they've ended up in life, and we don't realize that that could absolutely be me or you, yep. just for life circumstance and a few little minor decisions here or there can absolutely influence yes. the outcome. And it's something, you know, I obviously talk a lot about health and health inequality is a massive thing, depending on where you grow up in this country, your health, your, 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 um, your lifespan will be different. Could maybe by up to 10 years, just depending on your postcode. I mean, this sort of inequality is, is staggering. And it's not something we, I typically talk a lot about on this podcast, but I think it's an important topic. And as I try and talk to more and more varied people about different things about, you know, it's all ultimately how to live better, how we can all live better lives. And I think we live better lives, not only when we feel better individually, but when society is happier yes. and healthier around us. Yep. It's very hard to be happy when, yes, you're individually doing well, but people around you are struggling. Yes, but we are all on the same rock. Yeah. We're all on this earth at the same moment in time in history. Like we're all here together and yeah. we're all going to end up in the same six foot hole at the end of it. So again, my belief is the fact we should work together and we should help other people. Yeah. And, and that's what life should be about. It shouldn't be about profit constantly, like yeah. selling you stuff constantly. It should be about working together and helping you, yeah. helping your fellow man. Because like you said, society, community becomes so much better by living that yeah. sort of existence. And when, and when we don't live it, you, you see all the disharmony that's going on in the world today and all yeah. the hatred. And Exactly. It's getting to that point now where we can't keep doing things the way we've always done them. So it's getting more and more toxic. And it is about that. It is about that compassion. I think that's what is really missing in society. But John, this is by far the longest conversation I've ever had on the podcast. And I actually feel we're just warming up. So <laughs> yeah. um, I'd love at some point as we I think we better start wrapping this up but I would love to continue this at some point and have like maybe an in-depth conversation on the work that you're currently doing you know yeah. you're talking to government you're talking to school so maybe maybe we can con- mm. do that at some point and, you know but I think in terms of this conversation um you couldn't make up your story I told you this before yeah. you came in and I know it's it's hard I don't mean this in a, in a disrespectful way but if your story was being made into a Hollywood film I don't think you'd believe it <laughs> I have been told that a few times. I have been. I, have I mean, how does it feel to you to hear that? It's hard, isn't it? Because it, I've lived the experience, so I've gone through it, and and, and I feel like you do compartmentalize your life. Yeah. Um, you do, you do do it, and I, I suppose that's how you overcome stuff that goes on, like traumatic experiences and stuff. Um, it, it, it's just a, it's a very strange sensation because I am me, so it's hard for me to have look out, yeah, and look back it. in and go. Like, yeah, sometimes you do have to pinch yourself, like, before Theresa May stepped down as Prime Minister, I got invited to 10 Downing Street, and I'm I'm in, I'm in 10 Downing Street. Like, we have 200 people that were the heads of charities across the country that are working in youth violence across the United Kingdom, and I'm standing there, and Theresa May, Prime Minister, on a podium at 10 Downing Street, starts referencing my story, saying to them about, we as a society can't give up on people and then referencing me and saying, because of John McAvoy, like what he's managed to do with his life, he's gone on and he's accomplished what I've done. And it was surreal. Like, and that was, I would, I would say that's probably one of the biggest moments of this whole journey in the context of it being quite surreal um, that you look and go, <laughs> the prime minister of the country stands up and references me in a room for the Such people. Name. It? Yeah. <laughs> and, and he actually references what I've done. Um, from where I've come from, yeah. Yeah, but that was quite a surreal experience. But it is hard when you've when you've lived it, 
that's my norm. Um, g- g- given that it is your norm and it's got you to where you are today, do you regret anything? I regret, I regret what I did deeply. Uh, and, but I don't regret the experiences that I've gone through and I don't regret being in prison for 10 years. I regret what I did to go in there, but I don't regret being in there. Um, I, I, I don't, I'm not bitter about anything. Um, I'm not hateful, resentful. Has that been hard for you not to be bitter? At the beginning, like not now, but when I was in there, I was quite bitter, yeah. hateful, resentful towards the system and everything that it stood for. Um, but since my, since I decided to turn, change my the course of my life around, um, no, like I've, yes, I, I, I've just moved on with my life and yeah. I just believe it's a journey. Um, and I, and, and, and do you know what? I, I'm not a religious man. I'm not a religious man. Um, but there was one event before we close up where I was at a, the Wells book festival down in Somerset and before I went and done it, I asked the organizers when I was there that day, I said like, what, what's like the demographic of the audience? And they said, very white middle-class. It's probably one of the most affluent areas in the country you can live. It was very like Nick Clegg was talking before me. <laughs> and then I was like, okay. And I thought I'm really going to be in for a tough time after this, after I've stood up like, and all, so all these old people have come in and we do this talk and then hands are going up and these old people are like, we, we want to give you money. We want to give you money to help you doing what you're doing. Like, wow. and I, I was blown away. And then when I was standing around, a couple of them introducing themselves, saying hello and stuff. And, and um, I used to be a Roman Catholic when I was growing up, Irish family. And I stopped believing in God when I went to prison. And this priest come up to me at this World Somerset Book Festival. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, the book Redemption, because that's what it's called. He went, has that got a religious connotation to it? I said, no. He said, are you religious? I said, I was, I was a Catholic, um, but I stopped believing in God, ironically, when I went to prison, because I thought if there's a God, why am I in this bad situation? Um, as, as mad as that seems, what I'm trying yeah. to is that justification. I like said, if there's a God, why has he let me come to prison? And he put his hand on my shoulder and, and, and this will live with me for the rest of my life. And the hairs on my neck stood up and they will now. And he went to me, I have never seen a man put on earth to do what you're doing more clearly than what you've been put on earth to do. And he went, you might not believe in God, but Jesus believes in you. And I, I'm not saying this, I'm not religious now, right. uh, but it was very powerful when a man of, because of, of, I respect other people's religions. Yeah. It's very powerful when a man that does believe in God believes that there's some greater being for you. Yeah. And the reason why you're doing what you're doing is for a calling in your life. And I, and I don't believe in God, but I believe that what I'm doing today was my calling. And yeah. I believe that was what I was put on earth to do. And that's why, like, again, Someone once said to me, like, do you ever get nervous if you stand up in front of 2,000 people and speak? And I don't, because even if I tried to mess up what I was about to say, it would be impossible because I can't, because I'm speaking from my heart. Yeah. I don't have to memorize stuff. I don't have to go up with notes because what I'm saying, I believe in, and it's my, it's me being true to myself. If it was fake yeah. and it was artificial, I would have to go up with notes and prompters and stuff, yeah. and, I, and I don't. And, it, and, and, and that's why I believe that I'm able to stand up in front of big groups of people and, and talk and- you Just tell your yeah, story. And influence. Yeah. I mean- Literally, I was getting tingling at the back of my neck as you were saying that because I can see from here clearly that you are here for a reason. You, there's, there's no doubt that your story is so powerful that it is making an impact. It is going to change people's lives. And yeah, you had to go through it. That was your journey. We've all got our own paths, right? But I think there's something powerful about it that will inspire 
thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, as your story gets more and more well known, it shows the potential of any human being. Mm. That no matter where you're at, you can make change. You can turn your life around. A lot of people listen to this podcast for health and well-being. And although we've not technically spoken about health and well-being, what we have spoken about is mindset, belief, that you can change. And I think those things are just as relevant to my audience as they might be to a um, school audience or you know young offenders who you're trying to inspire. John, this podcast is called Feel Better, Live More because as I say over and over again, when we feel better in ourselves, we get more out of lives. I always love my guests where possible to leave the listeners with some actionable tips for you or things that they can think about applying into their own life immediately to improve their lives. And I wonder, I appreciate you've not had any prep on this, but I wonder, have you got some closing thoughts for people that no matter where they're at in their life, they can think about applying to improve the way things are? I would always, I would always go back to, it goes back to self-belief and not setting limits and what you're able to achieve and what you're able to accomplish. Um, I'm a great believer in positive thought, visualization, um, and working towards something. And, and, and it's not about being the best. It's about being the best version of you. Um, I might not be the greatest Ironman athlete in the world, but I just want to be the best I can be. Um, and that's, what's important in life, like you being the best version of you and, and, and believing that there's a possibility you can always get better. You can always overcome and it's never the end until it's the end. So until you take your last dying breath and they're going to put you in that casket, you've, you've got life. And if you've got life, live it. Because if you, <laughs> if, if you, you're on this planet and it's such a short period of time, like we're like a, a blink of an eye on the planet. And I just think you have to maximize every day of it. You have to go out there and you have to live your life to the fullest. Um, and, and that sometimes we all have bad days. I have loads of bad days, but you have to be so appreciative of the fact that you can you can breathe and and you can live and that's what life is about it's about it going out and experiences enjoyment yeah. and, and not getting bogged down on stuff that isn't that important yeah well thank you so much for sharing that thank you for so openly sharing your story um incredible i've heard it before but to hear it over the table from you literally i could feel it inside i could feel tingles um John, if people want to feed back to you, they want to get in touch with you, can they find you on social media? Yeah. If so, where would you like them to find um, you? Yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Um, yeah, so I've got an internet site, some website and stuff. So really, there's an email address. So if anyone wants to email, they just go onto the website and you click through like the message section on it. Yeah, fantastic. But I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Well, John, look, thanks for the time today. Good luck in your race next weekend. Thank you. I, I find it hard to believe that anyone can compete <laughs> with your self-belief and your ability to suffer. So I look forward to seeing what happens there. Well, let's let's definitely do a part two. Yep. I think there's so much more to talk about, but good luck with everything Thank you're you doing. Very much. You're making a huge Thank difference, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers, John. Bye. So what did you think? That is a pretty incredible life story and transformation, and one that I hope has put a spring in your step and left you feeling inspired and motivated. Do you have a think about one thing or one idea that you can take away from our conversation? and start applying in your own life. Now, one powerful idea I took from this conversation is, I guess, this idea that you can always change the story and narrative you put on your life anytime you like. Just as John did when his friend died, literally overnight, John changes his story 
And with that new story comes a new outcome. In fact, I reference John and this very idea in chapter five of my new book, Happy Minds, Happy Life, 10 Simple Ways to Feel Great Every Day. And if you're someone who enjoys my weekly podcast, I really think you are going to love this book. It contains lots of simple ideas and tools to help you look after your mind and enhance your mental well-being. This in turn is going to have a transformative impact on your happiness and your overall health. Now, I have to say feedback to this book so far has been absolutely incredible. I'm so delighted as I truly believe it to be the most important book I have written to date. If you live in the UK, you can pick up your very own copy of the book right now. It's available as a paperback, as an ebook, but also as an audiobook, which I'm narrating. And if you don't live in the UK, you can see all international links to order in the episode description in your podcast app. If you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share this podcast with your friends and family or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. And please note that if you want to listen to this show without any adverts, that option is now available for a small monthly fee on Apple and on Android. Always remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle change is always worth it, because when you feel better, you live more.